It is Wednesday, September 29th. Welcome to Real Talk. Jesperson with Hoyles and Brooks. This show is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. You know, it was a big weekend for the team at Bitcoin Well. We talked to founding CEO Adam O'Brien yesterday. And I, I was wondering, team, if he thought that, that maybe I was playing it cool. You know what I mean? Because they had a whole bunch of stuff happening. They're winning all these big awards. They're, they're being recognized as one of the, the best workplaces in Canada. Bitcoin Well, recognized over the weekend as one of Canada's top growing companies in the Globe and Mail's third annual business ranking. And we have the CEO on the show yesterday, and I didn't mention it. Probably should have. But I wonder if Adam O'Brien maybe thought, he's playing it cool. I like that. We just stuck to talking digital currency in Canada. We didn't really get into the fact that our title sponsor has been recognized as one of Canada's top growing companies in the Globe and Mail's third annual business ranking. So let me say unabashedly, we're proud of you, but we're not surprised. You can find a link to what they're doing under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Busy show today. In just a moment, uh, it's going to be my absolute honor to welcome the founder of Orange Shirt Day to the program. Phyllis Webstad will join us in just a moment. Tomorrow, uh, the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation across the country. For the most part, some provinces and territories recognizing the stat holiday, others not. But I know that people will be that we here as a team at Real Talk will be bringing you a special episode tomorrow in hopes that we'll come together with the confidence that we'll come together as a community for pause, for reflection, for some real talk about reconciliation. That's tomorrow. And Phyllis will tee that up for us today. She herself, a residential school survivor, wanted to let you know if, if you were paying attention to our rundown, to our show lineup yesterday, you would have heard me tee up Dr. Katrine Tin to talk about digital currencies. It didn't work out. Technically, it didn't work out. Sometimes that happens. There's hiccups. We do this thing live. And so we've rescheduled the good doctor. We're going to get into that conversation with her today. Better understand that. And then we're going to talk about human trafficking. And that's coming up in about an hour and a half from now. Julia Drydick and Andrea Heinz will join us. Andrea has been on the show before. She was a sex trade worker for about seven years. She owned a brothel. Now she works as a sex trade abolitionist. That's her mission. It's her calling, you might say. Uh, Julia is going to join us as well. We're going to talk about why there were skeletons set up outside Edmonton City Hall yesterday. We'll talk about R. Kelly, of course, expected to be sentenced to decades behind bars following his recent conviction. And we'll find out why representative executives from Facebook are being summoned to testify in the United States. Does one of the biggest and most valuable companies in the world knowingly tolerate, permit, even facilitate human trafficking on its platform. That's coming up in about an hour and a half. Plus, we'll take a look at Alberta's COVID response, non-response, you might call it, following a bit of a non-announcement from Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney yesterday. That's coming up in just a bit. Of course, per usual, Real Talkers en masse emailed the show. You were in touch with us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'll get to some of your emails, some of your thoughts on where you're at right now with regards to how provinces and territories across the country are managing this Delta variant, this fourth wave 
We have an especially powerful email from Rosemary who wrote in uh, regarding her school kids. She's got two kids of her own in school and she's beside herself right now. Uh, We want to put her words in front of you. This can be your platform, friends. It's part of the purpose of Real Talk. And we want to make sure that you know that your messages are important to us. And so, Rosemary, among those emails we'll get into, I also have an unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll underway right now asking you what you'd like to see with regards to government action on COVID-19 and some interesting results there. It's still open. You can follow me at Ryan Jesperson. Take a look at that. Thousands of people have chimed in already. Again, unofficial unscientific but always interesting to see where people go with that and so we'll get into that coming up in just a second wanted to take two seconds to remind you that our friends at westworld computers right now are the ones that power our studio they make shows like this one today possible we went to them with a specific mission we mapped out exactly what we intended to do the live streaming elements the tech on demand stuff that we needed and Daryl and his team designed a setup for us just like they can do for you. They're in the business of customer service. It's why the family-owned business has been around for more than 40 years. Daryl wanted me to remind you that they're a Bell-authorized dealer, and that means that right now they have the all-new iPad mini 6th generation, the iPhone 13, and that stunning iPhone 13 Pro. The iPhone 13 Pro is for the most part, the best phone you can get on the market right now. They have them at Westworld Computers. They'll ship across Canada when you go shopping at westworld.ca. Also, a shout out, of course, to our friends at Park Power. I was talking to my friend Michael the other day, and and he said, he goes, I just have a few questions about Park Power. Like, uh, for the most part, I mean, the biggest question is, what's the catch? And I went, yeah, there's no catch. And he went, well, then I guess I should just probably take my internet, electricity, and natural gas business to Park Power. I go, yeah. And so he did. He signed up using the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca and automatically Michael got 70 bucks off his first bill. There's no catch. Park Power is locally owned. And of course, they support this show. So if you support this show, why not take your business to Park Power at parkpower.ca? Tomorrow is a, an extremely important day across the country. The first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This on the heels of several devastating months as Canadians have had tough conversations. Indigenous people in Canada driving these conversations. Of course, the impetus, more than 5,000 unmarked graves discovered outside former residential schools across this country. Phyllis Webstad originates from the Canoe Creek Indian Band. She's a residential school survivor, and she is the founder of Orange Shirt Day, now executive director of the Orange Shirt Society. Phyllis, we are honored to have you joining us on the program this morning. Thank you for making time for us, and a good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show. I I think that people are going to wonder... Why the orange shirt? Where did the orange shirt come from? Can you tell us the story? Yes, I'm third generation Indian residential school survivor that attended the St. Joseph Mission just outside of Williams Lake, BC. So my granny was the first generation, all of her 10 children and me and my uh, older cousin. So the three generations went and Granny did like she had always done with uh, the kids. I lived with Granny until I was 10. 
She took me and my cousin to town to buy something new to wear for school. Even though she knew what she was buying would be taken away, she always wanted us to be presented in our best possible way. I chose a shiny new shirt, uh, orange color. It was, uh, I turned six in 1973. And that was the age of like the really bright colors, the hippie era. And I chose a bright orange shirt for my first day of school. And when I uh, got to the mission, as we called it, it's about a two hour ride from the reserve to the mission. And when I got there, my shirt was taken and no matter what I did, want cried and said I wanted it back. I, I never have, uh, I'm, haven't had a memory. I'm, I'm nervous. <laughs> oh, please don't be nervous. We're, we're so happy to have you here. Phyllis, just please consider me a friend and an ally. We, we're just, we're here to hear your story. It's a remarkable one. I'm, I'm really grateful that you're here to talk to us. Yeah. So I, I don't have a memory of ever wearing my shirt again. So very quickly, that's the orange shirt story. Do you remember how it made you feel? Uh, it, it, it might feel like a bit of an obvious question, but but how did it make you feel when, when that orange shirt was taken away? Of course, the significance of it, your, your granny purchasing it for you, you going as a family to go shopping. Uh, obviously, I would imagine some, some mixed feelings about going to school, even at six years old. Were you... Were you somewhat aware of, of what the implications were? No, I have a book out that just came out September 1st called Beyond the Orange Shirt Story. And in there, uh, I say, explain how, even if it was explained to me, I wouldn't have understood. All I knew was that I was six. I'd been waiting to go to school forever, like any five-year-old is, and... I just wanted to go to school. When I do my presentations to students in, especially elementary, they always ask me, what was it like? How did you feel when you got there? And what I tell them is it was pee your pants terror. And it was just so scary to be there with a the big building. I'd never seen that big of a building before. On the reserve, we didn't have electricity or running water. My baths were by the uh, stove in a tub at Granny's house, and and they had showers. I'd never seen water coming out of the walls before, so it was everything about it was scary. We didn't. I'd seen flushing toilets because we went to town, but I'd never seen never seen a, a shower before, so that was really really scary, and and. No matter how much we cried, like I used to cry and think, why, if Granny knows I'm here, why isn't she coming to get me? <clears throat> why would she leave me here? And uh, just really, as a six-year-old child, child learned to go within that, at six years old, to realize that my life depends on me and all of us five, six years old, trying to comfort each other. And because um, there wasn't really any adults there that could could comfort us so just a real um i learned to disassociate or dissociate to uh like uh, survivors of trauma do to go somewhere else in my mind and my body could stay like my spirit could travel so yeah it's um it's just really pee or pants terror in every way that's uh that's such a powerful 
thing to hear. You know, your 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 body would stay, but your spirit would travel. You mentioned, Phil, that you were a third generation residential school survivor. Had had you been prepared as much as a six year old could? Uh, it sounds to me like your granny obviously played a huge role in your life, uh, early in your life. Were you, had, you, had you been mentally prepared at all, or, or did, did you have a sense from family members or, or survivors in your life of, of what this might entail? No, it was never talked about. Even as a newly, like I just turned six in July, so even if I was told and prepared somewhat, um the way of preparing and in my one of my books i talk about it is uh when a child turned five granny would quit the uh any it was a way to prepare her heart to lose her children and lose us uh, she would quit hugging and quit um like there was no more physical uh attention and that was a way of preparing us for what was to come to be in an environment where we did not matter. And that's where every child matters comes from. Because when I was there, I, I could be lonely, hungry, sad, um, sick, and uh, we weren't tended to. We were in an environment where we did not matter. I I just I want to let you know how much it means to me. You know, we're we're hearing why the orange shirt from the founder of orange shirt day we're hearing why every child matters why that is the slogan uh from 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 the person who essentially kick-started this movement from based on not only your very personal experience but obviously the experience of thousands and thousands of indigenous children across the country what does it mean to you uh, to know that tomorrow a nation will pause and reflect literally millions of people will uh, millions of people will wear orange. I mean, I mean, let me let me just read at random, uh, Phyllis, on our live chat right now. I mean, people are watching on YouTube live. Many more will watch or listen to this later in the day. Many people are simply saying hello and sending you love, and they're grateful that you're joining us today. Brenna uh, says hello to you and says, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Brenna says, I will wear orange tomorrow. I will be participating in events to honor survivors and their families. Are you somewhat taken aback by this movement and, and, and how much your initiative has grown to, to become a national focus? From the very beginning, the whole Orange Shirt movement has been divinely guided. That's the best way I can describe what's happening because it has a life of its own and there's no way I can humanly possible do uh, what's happening right now. So the ancestors and the children uh, the missing children and the unmarked burials are, are behind this. I, I know they are. And originally, Orange Shirt Day was for to be for the mission, the Caribou Chilcotin area. It hit Facebook and it just spread it, um, it to become what it is today. And I have been working with those in the federal government on uh, getting the day to be a national day for, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> for truth and reconciliation. I thought we were going to go a third round. The Bill C-5 was stuck in the House of Commons since the end of November 2020. And 
the day after the uh, announcement of the Tecumlubsh uh, Deshawatmach 215, I got a call from the House of Commons that the the bill was going to go through. So within a week, it it received royal assent to be uh, the implementation of TRC recommendation number 80 to make the day uh, a statutory holiday. And yeah, it's just been a whirlwind. Um, I think maybe through the winter, I'll have some time to reflect and to uh, be in awe. But right now I'm just in response mode, doing what I can to uh, be here and to uh, talk to as many people as I can and be present as much as humanly possible. Um, and it's, uh, I'm looking forward to October 1st. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, it's, it's remarkable, uh, what you've already accomplished, uh, with, with regards to a national awareness and the symbolism, uh, is very important. Uh, Phyllis, I was, I was sharing a story. This is just anecdotal. This is just one story of thousands across Canada, but there's a, there's a, a home in the neighborhood where we live, uh, just a couple of streets down from us. And, and I live in a heritage neighborhood, so a lot of homes fly the Canadian flags. Uh, it's been kind of standard outdoor decor. And this one home in particular, uh, shortly after those 215 unmarked graves were discovered, swapped out its Canadian flag for an orange sash. And it continues to fly. And more and more people have done that. I've, I've seen elementary schools near our home with orange surveyor's tape, hundreds of knots tied into the chain link fence. And they remain there. They have remained there for months. It's a very powerful image. How do you believe that we move from the symbolism to action on reconciliation? I think establishing this National Day is one great example what else would you like people to be thinking about tomorrow with regards to how they can take action on reconciliation? Mm -hmm. I was uh, doing book signings in Vancouver and a teacher came. Uh, she was uh, uh, a new immigrant, say, within the last 10 years, and she was taking the task on uh, to talk to her children about residential schools and had bought uh, my book uh, for the younger grades and I told her you're a part of reconciliation of uh, helping to teach the children that's what it's going to take and I read on Facebook that uh, one one of my friends said that uh, they're starting to understand meaning Canadians are starting to understand what's happening and before you can take action, you need to uh, have an understanding and uh, an awareness. And um, there's awareness, acceptance, and then action. So you can't go from awareness to action. You need to actually accept and to <clears throat> really think about what, like what, what is this information I'm being given? And the truth is not yet finished being told across Canada. And uh, there's more children in unmarked graves all across Canada. And there's also the, the truth about uh, babies that were burnt in incinerators all across Canada. That's yet to come out and the reason that those babies are there. And uh, so there's uh, just need to be aware to accept what, you know, what is it? It's, it's the truth. 
and uh, then can think of what what the action would be. Um, and but it's uh, what I ask people to do is to listen to our truths with an with an open mind, and an open heart, and uh, without judgment, to listen. Uh, for instance, like those uh, babies will never be a part of the official count. And who knows how many there are across Canada in those, like that were put in those incinerators and in at the various sites. And that's going to be like nasty when, you know, when that starts getting talked about in, in the media, like we, we know it already in our Indigenous communities that that happened, but when the it starts to get out there. Um, it'll be just like uh, the uncovering of the 215 at come Loops. Uh, the world was shocked. People were shocked. And uh, there's a whole report. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has a report on missing children and unmarked burials. That was a result of the of the uh, testimonies across Canada when they did the TRC um, <clears throat> to hear the truths of survivors across Canada. Uh, yet. Everyone was shocked by the news. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of reading to do. Um, even on my part, I need to do a lot of reading. And um, it's, I'm glad as many survivors are alive as possible while this is happening so that their truths can be told and maybe even have a little bit of healing for themselves and their families before they move to the spirit world. And within as little as 50 years, there will be no survivors left in Canada. That's not very long. So uh, then I think the truth may be considered being fully told. It took a lot of years to get to this spot. And as Murray Sinclair says, it took 150 years to knock it down. It's going to take that long to build it back up. So we're just in the very, very beginning stages and uh, uh, Orange Shirt Day was created to have conversation about all aspects of residential school and it was also created for a day to honor survivors and their families and to remember those that didn't make it. I used to say make it home but I stop at make it now because in 2021, the year we're in right now, survivors and their families continue to leave this earth because of experiences, their experiences and the intergenerational effects of the, at, at those school, unquote, unquote, schools by taking their own lives by um, drugs and alcohol. So it's, we're still feeling it today in 2021. So this isn't something that happened and was over a hundred years ago. It's, it's still affecting today and I went on a cross-Canada tour before COVID and uh, funded by Canadian Heritage and often I would be introduced as the real Phyllis Webstead because <laughs> uh, people were surprised that I was as young as I was. I just turned 54 this year and a lot of them thought that we were all dead and gone and uh, yet here I, I was. and. Yeah, so I'm just kind of rambling. So. No, you're not. You're you're speaking truth, and we're honored to hear you. Uh, we're talking to Phyllis Webstad. If you've just tuned in, if you're streaming us live on the Mixler Audio app, Phyllis is a residential school survivor, third generation, the founder of Orange Shirt Day. Uh, 
Uh, I want to remind our audience that there are resources available in the form of the Residential School Survivor Support Line at one 925 4419. That's one 925 4419 On our live chat, Tony says, even at my mature age, I'm surprised at how much I still have to learn. And even more so when it comes to the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, Joanne says, there is no reconciliation until we understand the truth. And we cannot skip this phase. Phyllis, you talked about something horrific, and I think it's important to talk about. A couple of months ago, we referenced it on the show. It was testimony from survivors as part of that Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission's mandate. And survivors had testified about these babies that were born. It's horrific to talk about, but I think it's important. Babies that were born at these so-called schools and, and that were immediately uh, murdered is the word that you would use because that's what it was. Uh, they were murdered in horrific fashion. Uh, thrown into incinerators. The babies, of course, were fathered uh, in many of these circumstances by clergy, by priests that were at these schools. That, of course, is rape. Uh, there was sexual assault. There was physical assault. There was rape and there was murder. And it occurred uh, in many, many different instances. And some of these people are still alive. And I have seen a groundswell in this nation of people demanding accountability and demanding justice, uh, much like uh, charges that have been laid decades after World War II uh, in the context of war crimes. Uh, many people are demanding that the Canadian judicial system, that the RCMP, other investigative investigatory bodies, including police forces across this country, get serious about pressing charges. Do you have an opinion on that? I'd be curious to hear it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, um, you're the first person that I've ever had an interview with that understood and talked about that openly. Like, I commend you for that. Um, and it's, it's amazing that, that you're talking about that and putting words to it because it's been under the rug for so long. And um, I think that'll be a natural progression eventually like um, hopefully soon it'll take um, I think some political pressure uh, I'm not sh sure uh, this is just all uh, like things happen in in their own time and it's this is the national the first national day for truth and reconciliation so we're making history right now and we're uh, I know the, the search began at the mission on August 30th, so it's being actively searched right now for missing children and unmarked burials. And those incinerators that are there are um, being tested as well. And so the report, I hope, will be, will be out soon. But um, I, I think that's the next natural progression of this is that because there are women alive today that can tell you their truths about this very subject and um that uh yeah so i i, I hope they do get charged because uh, uh years ago we said like the mission where where i went to needs to be an active crime scene it needs to be 
looked at as a crime scene and uh, whatever happened there needs and with crime what happens when there's a crime there's a you know a, per a perpetrator and there's a law system there that that can deal with them and so uh, the search is being done now and then um, I'm hoping that uh, the uh, children can be it, it's for the families to say though I, I don't in our family there is everyone made it home and I'm thinking that those that have missing loved ones will want to repatriate and bring them home I, uh, I, I don't know that for sure I haven't we haven't gotten to that point and again things take time and I can see that happening you know that, Phyllis uh, it's it's it, it's it's never lost on me uh, that, that when we have the honor of speaking with someone like yourself about residential schools that that people say oh thank goodness oh oh it's it's a it's it's a good oh thank goodness everyone in Phyllis's family made it home you know when we're talking about school uh, and I think that it paints such a realistic picture of, of how horrific this legacy is that we see it as a relief that the kids made it home alive from school. And I think that this needs to continually be pounded home. And I think that we need to have this continually reiterated. Um, at the same time, you know, we see challenges, hurdles, uh, opposition, pushback continue to arise. I mean, an example from our home province uh, in Alberta, you know, one of the senior people tapped on the shoulder to rewrite Alberta's curriculum, Alberta's social studies curriculum. A guy by the name of Chris Champion is an active, current residential school denier. Uh, that's on the that's on the record. That's a fact. And uh, Dwayne is watching us right now, and and he's wondering, Phyllis, how do you deal with people who deny this tragic? part of Canada's history for um, so fortunately they are increasingly the minority and um, what I like to focus on is that the school age students are learning this history and um, sometimes people with that opinion just need to you know to leave this earth with their with their opinions and their you know thinking it didn't happen and and um, we all know that it did and we're not lying and we're not <clears throat> making this up and um, yeah I don't know what to say to people like that like uh, I just see the ostrich with its head stuck in the sand and its butt sticking out. <clears throat> that's the 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 end that they choose to view the world in, I guess, with their you know their butt in. But hmm. <laughs> um, I, I laugh because I yeah um, the <clears throat> children are learning about the true history, and this isn't only Indigenous history. This is Canadian history, and there's no longer. Uh, an excuse for Canadians not like everybody not to know about about this history and the students are learning it and uh, one day soon uh, society will have had this in their curriculum for instance in Williams Lake in 2026 I believe will be the first graduating class 
that has had Orange Shirt Day active for them to participate in every year. So I plan to be a big part of that graduating class in 2026, that these grade 12s are going out into the world, receiving 13 years, uh, including kindergarten, of being taught about this history. And uh, so what it, I look forward to witnessing what a difference that'll make in the world. And even now when I go to restaurants, there's uh, ones that have newly graduated and I watched your video, I watched your video. And um, so they, they have an understanding of, of residential schools and, and that's gonna make a difference in the way that we're treated. Um, I tried to open a business uh, in 2013 and the bank manager who was my age assumed I was on welfare and she asked, do you people file tax returns? And um, yeah, so that uh, with this new age that's coming out with knowing and learning about it in school, they'll, they'll know more and uh, be able to uh, help us to um, to succeed, I guess. Even our own people, it'd be even better if it was an Indigenous bank manager there to to help. So, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it like you said there. I mean, the importance of 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 kids hearing about this, of young people learning about it in school, and, and I think, I mean, we've even just to be personal for a second. As a parent, as a, as a dad, you know, we've been working to try to find age-appropriate ways to talk about tough subjects, and this is one of them. And our six-year-old is aware that for uh, decades and decades, young Indigenous children his age were taken from their families and put into these residential schools. Uh, we have comments here on our chat, people saying that, that they did not understand, they did not fully understand the impact of intergenerational trauma and they're so grateful for people like you Phyllis who have taken leadership roles um, across this country to have people talking about this uh, I'll say anecdotally on July 1st uh, we as a family wanted to uh, reflect on the complicated situation around what is typically celebrated as Canada Day especially I think July 1st 2021 because this was uh, just shortly after, like you said, you know, we, we talk about numbers and, and what we really should do is I should sit here and be able to read names because these numbers are human beings. They're people, they're children uh, whose lives were snuffed out far too early. But 215, 751, this number now above 5000. I know July 1st. A lot of people wrestled with it, and we talked about it on this show. And, and anyway, the point is we endeavored to get these buttons, these, these Every Child Matters orange buttons. And I was on Etsy, and I was communicating with the shop owner on Etsy ahead of time, trying to ensure, doing my best to ensure anyway, that this was an indigenous initiative. You look at one of Canada's biggest retailers. I mean, the retailer is older than Canada itself, and I know that the Bay has been facing some fire right now for selling orange shirts uh, now to be reasonable i acknowledge that people have to get the orange shirts somewhere but the bay has certainly been criticized among other retailers for attempting to profit 
off of Canada's history when it comes to residential schools. Uh, this, for example, you know, people asking whether the Bay is trying to profit off the painful legacy of residential schools. What's your thought on that? On our, uh, we're updating our website uh, from Weebly to WordPress, but we've been putting on our website, so orangeshirtday.org, those that have contacted us uh, and want to help us, and the Bay is one of them, uh, London Drugs as well. They are sending us full proceeds. Uh, for instance, like London Drugs, they're not even taking their expenses off of the shirts. They're sending us the whole proceeds and that design that you just showed is our design for this year. We hold an art contest every year and uh, for elementary and high school students. And that design is Shane Homey. She's a Cree jingle dress dancer in uh, Boston Creek. I'll be meeting her for the first time tomorrow. But uh, yeah, I don't spend uh, time on this a lot anymore. I used to just lose a lot of hours of my life painting over it. Um, and I, I need to rely on, on humanity to, uh, to know right from wrong and to do your research on who's selling. And my son, uh, he's 40, he lives in Kamloops and uh, he is looking to like for, uh, he wants to get in the market, I guess, and to open a store in Kamloops for orange shirt products. And um, so I'm, we're looking at maybe uh, him doing that next year, like as the son of the orange shirt founder, like you, you know that you're, because uh, people don't want corporations profiting, which is like under, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it should be. But if an in indigenous, if it's indigenous owned and it's helping them with their families, uh, uh, then because basically everybody in Canada is, is either uh, intergenerational or a survivor. So there is a lot of uh, like Morocco and um, different parts of the world stealing even our design to make money. Like those are the ones that are just like, there's no shame hmm. in, in, in them. And, um, and even Walmart, like we, uh, uh, Walmart did contact us, but some of the stores put the shirts out premature before the marketing was uh, put out there to let people know that the proceeds are being sent to the Orange Shirt Society. <clears throat> the Orange Shirt Society is not, uh, we don't receive funding. We um, uh, rely on donations and shirt sales and what I can make uh, presenting. And uh, we've only been in operation since April of 2019 when I quit my full-time job to do this uh, full time. And we are, uh, we applied to be charitable and we were denied uh, because what they said, what I, the society does is highly emotive and based on unproven facts. And when the 215 came out, I felt like copying that newspaper and sending them a copy of their, uh, their explanation and saying, is that enough for you? Mm. But um, instead of pursuing that and having a box which, which to operate in for myself, we're starting the Orange Shirt Society Foundation. And that will, uh, we're calling it Reconcilia Action, where uh, we've hired three new staff in the last uh, 
uh, two months. And up until then, it was myself. My cousin was helping me and a board member was helping full time. So up until then, it was just us. <clears throat> and um, people think we have offices all across Canada, but we don't. And um, uh, so the new executive director has been talking to Canadian Tire, to the NHL, uh, like Carrie Price, um, to do uh, education because to be charitable, you need to be education in your purposes. And for the society where we, we said awareness, and uh, so apparently awareness isn't education, but for the foundation, our purposes are going to be education, uh, start with edu like providing education uh, through sport and uh, like through doing sport on reserve or, or just, I'm not quite sure, I'm not involved in that, our, our executive director is, so watch out for the Orange Shirt Society Foundation. We will. Where we can accept donations and uh, be providing awareness on the history of residential schools um, intertwined with sport. Well, Phyllis, I look forward uh, to speaking with uh, yourself and your son uh, when that shop opens in Kamloops. Let's follow up. We'll follow up on on the action. I, I love that reconciliation. Um, it, it, it reminds me back to that popular ad campaign. You remember that that fitness marketing in, in Canada like 30 years ago, not participation. Everybody remembers participation. I like this reconciliation. I like that. I want to wrap this uh, with a comment from Crazy Fast Eddie, who's watching right now live. And he says, referencing the stat tomorrow that will be recognized in most jurisdictions in Canada. Eddie says, you know, one more day off for settlers to go quadding on unceded territory doesn't mean a thing until Canada Day and Thanksgiving Day is acknowledged as the real truth and reconciliation days. What would you like people to meditate on? to be thinking about or to take reconciliation on tomorrow? The what matters tomorrow is the conversation. If you're not aware, educate yourselves to become more aware. Talk to a survivor or their families. Read uh, the Murdered and Mis Missing Indigenous Women and Girls report. Uh, there's a book... Um, on the Indian Act, uh, there's uh, the 94 calls to action, make a reconciliation action plan. There's the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Report, which is volumes, and there's a, a section on missing children and unmarked burials. Read that. Um, yeah, it's, it's just about the day uh, to bring awareness and education about uh, the history of the and the legacy of residential schools in Canada. And you can go quadding on that day with your friends or your family, but just have a conversation. Tell them something that you learned about what happened to us and um, something that maybe you've seen on Facebook or a friend told you or have that conversation. That's what it's about. And um, that's that's the biggest thing. Hmm. Phyllis, uh, it, it's been an absolute honor to, to speak with you today. I, I, I can't put into words how much respect I have for you and what you're doing right now. Uh, thank you for making time for us and, and participating in some real talk this morning. 
Yes, I've I've enjoyed this. It's been the best media interview I've had. So it's it's real. That's what I like. So real talk. So Gooks Jam, thank you everybody that uh, joined in today, and uh, maybe someday I can meet meet you that uh, took part today. So Gooks Jam, thank you. Thank you, Phyllis. I look forward to that. That's uh, the remarkable Phyllis Webstad, uh, third generation residential school survivor, the founder of Orange Shirt Day. I like that. She says you can go quadding on the stat. You can go quadding, but talk about it. It reminds me of a family vacation that we had in Jasper just a few weeks ago. And I was telling you, Sarah, that we went on the uh, we went on the, uh, the the boat ride. You can take these boat rides to Spirit Island on, on Moline Lake. And the guide on the boat did a wonderful job of talking about the indigenous history over the course of, of, of hundreds of years, if not millennia, of hundreds of years and the different uh, First Nations that, that, had, uh, that, that would uh, travel across those lands, that would utilize those lands in different ways through the years and why Spirit Island was so significant and remains so significant to indigenous people in Canada. And that, that to me was, that was what I thought of right there is, you, you, you know, we have these uh, times where you get outdoors. And I think when you can get outdoors, you know, crazy fast, Eddie talking about going quadding I and mean, there's nothing wrong with quadding, but I also get what Eddie's talking about. Right. You know, I, I had a conversation yesterday with one of our partners. As a matter of fact, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning it. Doug Loveson, the president of Friesen Brothers. We had a wonderful lunch yesterday, and and Doug was talking to me about you know how how their company approaches. And I'm not speaking on behalf of Friesen Brothers right now. This is me personally, but talking about how they, as a company, approach National Labor Truth and Reconciliation or Remembrance Day. Another example, and and he said, you know, it's just. He said it's it, it was frustrating for him as a person, as an individual, to see so many people just sort of treat it as a day off. You, know, you sleep in, do whatever you want, crack a couple Caesars, you know, as opposed to actually putting some thought into it. And that's what Eddie's getting at. And I don't think and, and I don't think that I think Eddie makes an important point. Uh, but I do think that there's a real opportunity, especially on the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. There's a real opportunity uh, to use it, real talkers. I mean, I'm talking. I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to me, and I'm talking to the three people in this studio, and the bigger picture, the members of our team, and and everybody tomorrow to make a commitment that we'll have at least one conversation, at least one with somebody about what this all means. I feel like that interview with Phyllis is going to hit me in waves today. You know, like what what did she say? Pee your pants, terror. Uh, that's how she described the feeling of being at a residential school. She described her residential school, if you're just tuning in, uh, as one that should be treated as a crime scene. It's pretty powerful language from somebody who not only survived residential schools, but also learned from uh, two generations before her that had also had that experience. Unbelievable stuff. What a powerful, powerful lady she is. You know, speaking of initiatives, we were really proud of our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for, for their Every Child Matters, Every Cone Counts initiative through the month of August and proud of you for supporting it. You remember almost $23,000 raised for the Wakota Win Society. And it was my honor two weekends ago to attend the check presentation and to hear from the leadership, these indigenous women uh, that put on these retreats, these healing retreats. For survivors of residential schools, on top of that, these women are also survivors of cancer. 
I mean, these are some of the most resilient people you'll ever meet. So proud of our friends at Dairy Queen for doing that, for putting their money where their mouth is, really. They wanted us to remind you as well that at their Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road locations, they have those favorite fall treats available right now, the Pecan Pie Blizzard Treat, the Pumpkin Pie Blizzard Treat, both available while supplies last. It's a limited time promotion, comes around every year. We know people look forward to it. You can find them at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You make sure you let them know you're there because you're a real talker. They love knowing that family is in the house. Speaking of Friesen Brothers, of course, that window is closed for the beef roundup. I know that a lot of you took advantage of that. They wanted us to remind you that you have a chance to prepare your favorite comfort food this fall as, as the leaves are dropping, the colors are changing, the weather's getting crisp. Isn't it a beautiful time of year? What a time for stew. You can prepare your favorite comfort food with six different types of Alberta meat stewing cubes, plus 500 Smart Shopper bonus points on every purchase and don't forget their triple chocolate tort famous recipe decadent light specially made in-house by their in-store bakers for a limited time only you can find that triple chocolate tort at the 16 Friesen brothers across the province of alberta for more than 65 years they've been alberta grown and alberta owned well we pick up on a conversation we had yesterday about digital Currency. I mean, the big headline is that China has made cryptocurrency transactions illegal. And then there's that story out of El Salvador as well, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. Our next guest, a professor at McGill University, earned her PhD at the London School of Economics. Uh, Dr. Katrin Tin, uh, pardon me, Katrin Tin. Uh, her research is focused on technological innovation, financial economics, finance and financial technology. Uh, Dr. Tin, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the show, and thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. What do you make of that story out of China, uh, the nation declaring cryptocurrency transactions illegal? What, what, why do you think the nation's doing it? What does it mean for the rest of the world? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, that was kind of the reaction when the Bitcoin itself emerged, like from many countries, uh, right? So there is always like a bit of uh, worries about whether this uh, independently developing innovations would be um, uh, sabotaging the well-functioning systems that we currently have. So some of these concerns are understandable. Of course, uh, China is also thinking of central bank uh, digital currency and maybe wanting to do this sort of things uh, uh, itself. So overall, the historical experience shows here that it hasn't been too possible to eliminate these things as long as people find value in them. So we'll see. You've, you've been working on this i mean in in this arena uh for for many years i mean for more than a decade right we've, we've been paying attention to the fact that cash payments have been in free fall i mean it's pretty rare to see people using cash these days i think of course that's been exas that trend has been exacerbated by covid uh, where a lot of people i mean retailers have said thanks but no thanks to cash and who could blame them but experts are uh, predicting that you know by 2030 which isn't that far away less than a decade uh, cash could make up less than 10% of monetary transactions. Can you explain to us in layperson's terms what this means, what the implications are for people's everyday lives? 
So obviously, the reason why people are using digital means of payments because it is more convenient, it uh, can be better, and that's where the potential dangers are. Because like as long as these sort of services are provided by uh, banks, but even more so by retailers, where there is obvious complementarities between um, allowing people to make payments digitally, but at the same time uh, wanting to learn about their spending uh, patterns, which can be put in a good use, but it can be complementary to advertising, maybe sometimes annoying advertising, and can also have some even worse consequences, which I can give uh, some uh, some examples. Yeah, please. uh, because, uh, yeah, so it seems that even very simple digital data, like um, whether people buy something in the late evening or during the daytime, or whether they are buying it uh, using an iPhone or they are using an Android phone, can be associated uh, with a credit worthiness. So imagine that all this... Uh, transactions that can be seen by somebody will have consequences on like at what terms people get credit, whether they can get insurance and so on. And in many cases, whether knowing somebody's spending is a good or bad thing is not necessarily obvious. So for example, somebody buying a medicine could be considered by insurance companies, somebody who is in poor health, but it could also be considered uh, somebody who is taking care of their health. So there is no good way of always using um, this digital data in the ways that it improves consumer welfare. And this is something that is not possible when people were using physical cash as a means of payment. So to a degree, there is at least good idea to offer people alternatives where they are revealing less data about their spending. Uh, doctor, let's, let's reiterate here. I think it's important to note that when we're talking about digital currencies we're not automatically talking about cryptocurrencies and when we're talking about cryptocurrencies we're not automatically talking about digital currencies what do we need to understand about the difference between the two and 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 where do you see an interesting intersection okay so i mean there are i mean i guess that in the simplest terms there are like three different possibilities so there is like a count-based money which is intermediated by somebody so uh when banks are uh, letting people to use credit cards and, of course, they have um, uh, their own transactions where they are keeping some reserves but allowing, I mean, they are not having as much money in their account like that people uh, would at the same time uh, be able to withdraw. So in terms of this, uh, as well as when uh, Apple Pay is like linking to um, systems, it's also not uh, creating some uh, new form of money. So this is just facilitating transactions with uh, different means, and this can be digital. Second thing is like the cryptocurrencies, which have been envisioned or created as an alternative to uh, other forms of money, like Bitcoin. So it is a kind of uh, uh, classical, uh, perhaps, uh, completely privately emerged form of uh, money, like, for example, cowrie shells that have been used in some countries uh, historically, where which have value as long as people believe it uh, has value. Okay, so it is more similar to the physical cash, but at the same time, it's not backed by any central bank. So when people believe that uh, somebody's not going to want their bitcoins for any reason, there is no intrinsic reason why it would have value and why anybody would need to... Uh, accepts his uh, payments. 
I guess we could say the same uh, thing. Yeah, could you say the same yeah, thing so. about currency backed by gold? I mean, is, is is gold, and tell me if you think it's a stretch, but gold has intrinsic value because people believe that it has intrinsic value, right? If there was no more demand for gold, then gold wouldn't have value and currencies backed by gold would lose value, right? Yes, I mean, of course, yeah. But I mean, there is like, obviously, like also a history and beliefs in like, you know, at what point this, uh, this, uh, this would be happening. So in case of gold or central bank, the uh, back the currencies and uh, it seems relatively unlikely especially in countries like Canada or United States that uh, the people would just believe that US dollar doesn't have uh, any value and it would happen very fast unless there is something extremely wrong uh, uh, happening while when it is something newer like that uh, like uh, Bitcoins and it is more possible. Not mm. saying that it is something that I would be predicting, but it's more possible. You, uh, I mean, I mean, back uh, just a short while ago, the Bank of Canada launched a, a competition, essentially the Model X Challenge, and they asked experts at North American universities to come up with ways to create a new Canadian central bank digital currency. And your design uh, was one of the three winning projects. Uh, can you explain to us how the digital loony would work and and ultimately what this might mean for, for not just everyday Canadians, but for banks? Okay, so there are many questions here. So first thing is that in terms of the priorities of Bank of Canada, which is somewhat similar to the ones also shared by central banks like European Central Bank. So there is a big attention exactly to privacy that we were saying, but also on compliance with uh, regulation and uh, 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 trying to avoid it not becoming a tool for money laundering, as well as it being uh, something uh, universally acceptable but, and ultimately always convertible from uh, physical cash to digital cash and uh, uh, vice versa. So just like as an extra alternative. So these are kind of the design constraints that we had in mind. And additionally, in our proposal from McGill, we argued for a privacy asymmetric design, which essentially means it's the money you spend, it's private, and it's private by design. It is like built into the computer systems that is managing that uh, enables to guarantee it. So while the money received is uh, less private. So there are some records and there are some ID-linked accounts associated with any individual and uh, bank. So now getting to your question about the other players in, uh, in the system. Of course, the central bank is ultimately controlling the supply of this uh, digital uh, Canadian dollar, uh, like it does in the case of physical cash. But at the same time, so different players in this system, like who is uh, holding people's wallets, who is validating uh, uh, individuals' uh, identity, so they can very easily still involve financial institutions because they are doing it now as well. I mean, people don't exchange their debit card uh, money for cash uh, at the central banks. They are doing it in the commercial banks. And furthermore, all the other services that financial sector is providing, loans, means of savings, and so on, this uh, is not going to change. And in fact, this system could facilitate the uh, creation of uh, perhaps better contracts. How, how far off do you think we are from what you 
you might describe as a, I don't know if I want to say a dramatic change to, to how we understand currency or the implementation of digital currency. I'm, I'm going to suppose if it were to be a slope, we'd kind of already be on our way there. Uh, but what does maybe the next five or 10 years look like? How different might it be 10 years from now for the average person? Well, it is not at the moment very clear like how fast central banks are going to move its uh, issuance of the, um, central bank digital currencies. Of course, we know that some small countries have already done it, like, for example, the Bahamas and a number of other uh, relatively smaller countries. At the same time, Bank of Canada, European Central Bank are very much thinking about it. Uh, over 40 banks have launched at least research or some pilot programs thinking about it. So in terms of uh, it being in an active consideration, it's uh, very much there. So an optimist would think that it could happen uh, in a couple of years that uh, at least some bigger countries would do it. But uh, of course, this is uh, this is a... Uh, decision uh, that central banks have to make, that is a political decision, so it's very difficult to predict where this uh, is going to happen. And to a degree, it also obviously depends on what is happening to the privately generated uh, cryptocurrencies, as well as to initiatives like Libra's, uh, sorry, so Facebook's uh, Libra, now called uh, DM, whether this is going to get anywhere or not. So how much pressure there is from the alternatives can also either speed it up or slow it up. Does it, does it, so with someone like you with, with so much experience in the field, uh, you know, you, you, you've got, uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, you, you've earned your PhD from the London School of Economics. I mean, like you're probably of anybody I'm going to ever talk to about this. You're the one that's going to understand it all. Uh, does it excite you? Uh, does it inspire you? to see a big platform like Facebook getting in the mix on a, on a digital or cryptocurrency, or does it, does it kind of freak you out? <laughs> yeah. So I think that like, as I said before, there are some natural concerns. So of course, like when uh, you read uh, what they are proposing, they would also uh, want to argue that they would be protecting privacy, would not use it for commercial purposes of uh, let's say, targeted advertising, but at the same time, it would not seem very rational from the company's perspective as it is so complementary to their business. So this is really the question of like what they would be allowed to do or not allowed to do. What is obviously an advantage of something like Facebook, it's like immediately global. So it's not about uh, launching different projects in individual countries. It would immediately cover the whole world so it would be definitely something that uh, would need to be taken seriously dr katrine tin uh so grateful for your expertise this morning thank you for making time for us on real talk thank you fascinating stuff i try to stay up to speed on this stuff and i just feel like sometimes i'm like (laughs) you know when you're doing an interview with somebody like that like she just like is like that the expert in canada nice booking by the way hoyles you sort of sit there and i'm and I'm like, I don't want to sound stupid with my questions, but also I want to be, you know, sort of like, let's pretend I'm eight years old. Can you please explain this for me in terms I can understand? You know, what's going to happen to the to the kids piggy banks? What's the kids piggy bank going to look like 20 years from now? Are coins mm. just I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting that coins won't have value or things like that, but will they be relics? You know, like when you like get, the penny, well, like the penny. <laughs> 
Exactly. But I remember as a kid, uh, you know, getting my hands on a silver dollar mm. and holding it and just being like, wow, this is so cool. You know, it was before the loony, obviously, but like the silver dollar. And, you know, what, what's it worth? Well, a dollar. <laughs> you going to spend it? No. You know, my grandparents, plus their hearts, amazing, uh, always so generous. Uh, when the Olympics came to town in 1988 in Calgary, the Mint did these commemorative coins. And I remember, perhaps inspired by the great Gaetan Boucher, I think at the time, uh, I got the speed skater coin from the Royal Canadian. What are you holding there? Do you literally have a silver dollar with you? I have a silver silver dollar that my grandfather Come on. saved for me. Um, yeah, I carried it in my that? bag. What? No, I just carried it in my bag. Really? Yeah, it's got, yeah. My mom gave it to me a little while ago. She's like, yeah, your grandfather actually saved these for each of the four wow. kids in my family. Oh, so I didn't know. Wow. Do you, do you want to like trade it for something? No. I have, uh, I'm trying to look at what I have in front of me. I have a couple highlighters, a couple Sharpies. This is invaluable. I know like there is, yeah. there is no, I mean, like, it's yes, invaluable, but it's also worth a dollar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's only worth a dollar. I'll, get, I'll give you $1.50. Uh, but yeah, the Gaetan Boucher coin, the Royal Canadian. I can't believe you had a silver dollar that you just produced on the fly. That's amazing. But I remember talking to my parents about it. You kind of look at it because you know it has value. I was 11 years old when I was, when it was, and, and it's like, wow, what's this worth? It's like, it's worth $20, this coin. It's not worth spending it. Do not spend it. And I still have it. As a matter of fact, in its case, open in my closet. I see it every time I open my closet along with some other special little trinkets and things. If you know me, you know I'm big on trinkets. And uh, But that's one of them. But anyway, our thanks to Dr. Uh, Katrine Tin. That's just fascinating stuff. We have an announcement to make, uh, which is kind of exciting. And that is, as of this morning, Real Talk has a wine sponsor. And every month... Uh, we're going to be introducing you to a different vineyard, as a matter of fact, that we're proud to tell you about. Um, and I'm even more excited to let you know that every single vineyard that I'm going to talk to you about, I have experienced their masterpiece, which means the wine doesn't suck. This isn't a sales job. Well, it is in a way. But I'm not agreeing to tell you about wine that sucks. I'm agreeing to tell you about fabulous wine like our inaugural partners at La Crema. And you can learn more about what they're doing at lacrema.com. Now, in Alberta, if you're in our home province, you, you can get your hands on the La Crema Monterey Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir, the Rosé. And then they've got a brand new one, their La Crema Sonoma Sauvignon Blanc. Keep an eye out for their single vineyard. This is a little higher end. You want to impress your friends? You're on your way to, to maybe some sort of an outdoor autumn campfire, and you want to bring a wine that'll knock their socks off? I recommend the La Crema Russian River Chardonnay. It's unbelievable if you're into white. And their Pinot Noir is really nice as well. The La Crema Russian Pinot Noir. One of the cool things about this vineyard as well is their commitment to land stewardship. You can learn more about it on their website. I love that they're big on renewable energy. Their vineyard is powered by Tesla batteries, and they've got a really neat water-wise farming methodology. I mean, this is the next generation of wine production. You can find it anywhere you buy fine wines across the province of Alberta and learn more about them at lacrema.com. The following paid advertisement does not necessarily represent the views of Ryan Jesperson, Real Talk, or Relay Communications Group Incorporated. It's time for a fresh perspective. Edmonton deserves a leader who will work for you and with you. 
someone who understands the strengths of our community to do things better and faster. Cheryl Watson has built her career on results, not promises. On October 18th, vote Watson for mayor, and together, let's build a city that works. This ad is paid for by the Watson for Mayor campaign. You know, speaking of those Tesla batteries that the La Crema Vineyard is using, uh, I mean, wouldn't I be silly if I didn't remind you that our good friends at Kubi Energy are Tesla certified installers of solar panels and energy storage? I mean, Jake and his team have have built this company up to a remarkable level over the past number of years. Two headquarters. uh, They're proudly out of Edmonton, also out of Kamloops, B.C. When you deal with Kubi Energy, you know that their installers are either journeyman electricians or electrical apprentices. You can trust the job that they're doing. Jake and his team have been seeing projects roll out. We showed you one uh, a farming application just the other day. I mean, as far as your imagination will take you, that's as far as they can take you to bringing solar energy solutions to power your life. You can get a free quote today on your net zero goals by visiting kubienergy.ca. Want to check in uh, in just a second? Not quite yet, because I need to hit refresh here. I want to check in on our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll for this morning. It's been a while since we've seen a response like this. Uh, all right, Sam. Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it so I can share my screen here. Uh, look at this: 8,800 votes, 8,830 votes so far on uh, on our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll, where we ask Albertans to chime in. First of all, what's your vaccine status, and what would be your preferred government action to address this devastating fourth wave of COVID-19? This, of course, prompted by somewhat of a non-announcement yesterday by Alberta's premier. And we'll get into that in just a second, plus response online, what people were saying. And, and I'll be looking to you, those of you on the chatterbox right now on our live chat for, for up to the minute responses. But of the 8,829 votes we've received, and, and by the way, still nine hours left on this unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll, if you want to chime in, uh, 56% of respondents, so over half of those that responded said, I am vaxxed. Because we wanted to know them the context here. Are you vaccinated or are you unvaccinated? Number That's important context with regards to what you'd like to see, what you think would be intuitive or fair or just or evidence-based or intelligent government action. 56% say I'm vaxxed and I want to see a bit of a circuit breaker. They're calling it a fire break. You might want to call it a lockdown, whatever you call it. I mean, there's never truly been a quote-unquote lockdown, but you know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean. Right. Moving shops, retailers to, to curbside pickup only shutting down in store or in restaurant dining. Everybody knows it's, it's what we've been through on and off over the past year and a half. Uh, many health officials are saying that with Alberta's numbers right now leading the country in the worst way. I mean, if you want to look at COVID-19 statistics, you might say we're dominating them across Canada. Fifty six percent of you say I'm vaxxed and I'd like to see a lockdown. Forty percent say I'm vaxxed. And I'd like to see vaccine passports. In other words, life per usual for people who have been vaccinated and some tough realities for people that have not got the vaccine. You don't have to get the vaccine. Nobody's going to pin you down. It's not how we roll in a democratic nation like this, but there will be some consequences. In other words, you won't be able to go to the movie theater. You might not be able to go to the water park or to the restaurant, or you might not be able to walk into your favorite shop. There would be some implications by way of a vaccine passport. 40% choose that. 
1.7% of you said uh, you're unvaxxed and you'd prefer a lockdown. And it might not be what you think. I'm going to get to some comments here. One person chimed in, said, I'm unvaxxed because I just had a stem cell transplant and I can't get vaccinated yet. And I'm terrified. So don't automatically make assumptions. I'm speaking to myself. <laughs> Me and you. Let's not make assumptions when someone says I'm unvaxxed. Let's not go, oh, you don't believe in science, eh? That's not always the case. Sometimes it is. 1.7% unvaxxed calling for a lockdown. 2% of those that responded said you're unvaxxed and you'd prefer to see no government action. In other words, letter buck, letter rip, giver, whatever bumper sticker you want to use, that would be the approach you'd like to see from your government. Now, I recognize that those four options leave much to be desired for some folks. You might say, well, I don't quite see the answer I'd like to see. So I, I asked you to feel free to fill in the blanks. Nigel said, I'm open to the harshest measures, but my preferred would be passports that work with adequate support from government. None of this up to the business BS. Mandate them, enforce them, and support businesses to implement them. What about this one from Kirsten, who said, I'm vaccinated. I'd like to see lockdowns and passports. And I think that of the 150 or so comments we have so far, that's the, the most common one, the recurring one. People say longer term, we'd like to see passports. Shorter term, we think it's time for a circuit breaker, for a fire break. Think it's time for a, a brief lockdown. Two to four weeks, people are saying. Kirsten says, no willy nilly, leave it to somebody else to deal with this crap. The government needs to do something now. They did it with masks last year, but they held out until they could point the blame at Albertans. And then they said that they had no choice. Ryan checks in from rural Alberta, says anything the government does over and above letter buck will play into the hands of the 40% vaccine hesitant. Uh, I don't know if it's 40%, Ryan, but but that's all right. He says, I'd like to see enforcement of any rules above all else. Walton is wondering, what, what is a circuit week, you know, a couple weeks circuit breaker really do? He says, we'll be right back here two months later with the unvaccinated. We're getting really close to as many as we're going to get. We need a real passport and actual business support and endorsement. And the editorial producer of this show is shaking her set, her head so strongly. I'm concerned you may give yourself a headache. Do you disagree with what Walton said? Well, just the idea that two weeks, actually, when we look at the I'm not an epidemiologist, so like incubation, I don't know what the right term would be, but the, the two weeks for it to cycle through a person's body and being contagious, it actually would do something. Sam, do you have a, a strong opinion on this? I have strong opinions on a lot of things. Um, <laughs> That's why I ask. I, you know, I was very much for, you know, let's say about a month ago, firmly in the camp of let's do Vax passports. Let's let's reward the people that have been vaccinated and let them get on with their lives. Um, I think we're not able to do that anymore. I think we have moved beyond the point where things are so dire that we need this firebreak. We need something stricter, more locked down, more enforced. And then when we do swing back into a more open state, we need actual enforcement. We need, you know, not just the 17-year-old at the front of the business trembling, checking your vaccine card and getting ready to feel the wrath of the abuse yeah. of the anti-vaxxer that comes in. Yeah. Because that's causing more problems. Yeah. And I think that that's an important point that you make. I mean, it shouldn't, I don't think, be falling on the shoulders of, of small business or any business whatsoever. I think this should be the type of thing uh, where, you know, like, like, I mean, I talked about this earlier. I talked about this several weeks ago, $10,000 fine. I mean, make it so ridiculous. Uh, make it so stiff. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, drunk driving 
is another example. And people say, what actually works when it comes to to drunk driving? Is it is it stiff penalties? Is it awareness? And, and it's probably, quite frankly, a balance of both. Uh, you know, uh, uh, groups like MAD and others that work with government agencies to push out messaging, to talk about the stories of of, of, of grieving, you know, survivors of those lost, uh, you know, killed by drunk drivers. I mean, does, does that make us take pause and think to a certain degree? I think it does. You know, I think at the same time, it's fair to say, I mean, if the show is called Real Talk, let's have some real talk. We all know somebody that at a party that otherwise makes smart decisions uh, that's that's had a number of drinks at the party that feels like they're either close enough to home or it's late enough in the night that the check stops have been shut down. Or uh, as I heard someone say once, they're a good impaired driver that logic dissipates from people. Logic evaporates. You've never heard somebody say that. I've got a buddy that insists he's a really good text and driver. He's like, I'm he's like, I'm really good at texting and driving. So the rules don't apply to him. Right. He feels a little bit different. But what I think probably really resonates with people is that if you drive impaired, you know, if if the penalty were to be you lose your license for life or if the penalty were to be. And I know that this is going to raise the ire of some people because they're going to talk about 0.05 versus 0.08 and all the different things. And I, I get it. I'm opening up a can here and, and I promise we'll get back to COVID-19 as opposed to impaired driving in just a second. But if you know it's going to be a $10,000 fine and you're going to lose your license for a year on your first offense, you're probably not going to drive drunk. And I think that if there's stiff penalties, I mean, wouldn't you like to see there actually be a serious penalty announced for somebody that's caught trying to use a fake vaccine passport? I mean, can you imagine what would happen if you were pulled over in a traffic stop and you tried to use a fake driver's license and hand it to a police officer? How do you think you'd be treated right now? People chuckle at the vaccine passports and how easy they are to fake. You know, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the strongest words we've heard is from the chief medical officer of health asking people to please really stop trying to fake the passports. Really? Mark says I'm triple vaxxed. I want a proper lockdown and then a proper vaccine passport that can't be hacked, forged or manipulated in any way. Dan says the overall health of our population now demands a total lockdown as a thrice vaxxed individual. He says, I wish this wasn't the case. He went AZ, Pfizer, Pfizer says extraordinary times require extraordinary measures. Be well and safe, everyone. James is looking for an actual vaccine passport. I mean, this is a recurring theme, actual vaccine passports with QR codes. Kimberly says, I wanted passports, but I fear we're just too far from just having that as a measure. Lacey says, I misvoted. Can you erase mine? (laughs) Lacey's among the 8,830 that voted and just fed up tweeting at Métis Fire. Earmuffs, kids, says, I call Premier Jason Kenney's bullshit on this. I'm pissed off because this government hasn't done shit. She says, I want to quote Thelma. Is this Thelma and Louise? She says, I want to quote Thelma. Bullshit makes the grass grow green. And this government can't even organize that. (laughs) You know, I've never seen Thelma and Louise. What? Yeah, I've like I've seen the theme where the car goes launch. Uh, is that yeah. a spoiler? I've seen that. The, Everybody, the, knows. I've seen that scene, uh, but I've not actually watched the movie. I think I might have to. I've know. never watched uh, Pulp Fiction. Ooh, really? Really? Wow. I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I just confess to having not seen a pretty form, pretty influential film as yeah. well. So maybe you know what that would be kind of like a fun. We could do like a real talk drive in. And uh, we, we, we could play like three movies that maybe each of us would pick one where we, we would admit that we have not seen this movie. 
you know, and then we could all get get up to speed and have like a real talk drive, and that would be kind of fun. Yeah, Freezer Brothers could provide the popcorn, and we could do all kinds of things. I love that. I mean, that's COVID friendly, right? COVID friendly. Yeah, we could make that happen. Premier Jason Kenney yesterday uh, responded. Uh, I mean, after essentially saying they're they're amending, uh, they're they're introducing protective measures. The the, the the law has been amended to prevent protests outside hospitals. <laughs> Right away. I mean, you already know that this is the direction this is going to go and everybody's shaking their head. I know you at home. I know that you're walking your dog and you're listening to the podcast right now and you're shaking your head because you already know you are. I hope Jesperson says exactly what I'm thinking. Well, if you're thinking that I guess it's all right and good if it's enforced, that it'll keep these morons from protesting outside hospitals. That's a good thing. But, but if you're also thinking that that nurse contracts are coming up. And that if nurses are prohibited from protesting outside their place of work, it takes away a lot of the power that they might have as part of bargaining proceedings. You're where I'm at on that. I can't help be, but be suspicious about this government. I honestly feel like every single day you go through and, and, and when you're living in Alberta and you go, am I a conspiracy theorist? Or like, is it possible that this government actually made the vaccine passports editable on purpose? Am I, am I, am I Am I a conspiracy theorist if I suggest that? And you go, no, I don't think I am. And then I look at this and I go, you know, I think that this there's no way that the government's going to introduce this unless there's a way that it scratches the government's back. Anyway, so that's what was announced yesterday. And then a plea for Albertans to get vaccinated. And then that was it. And people were wondering what more was there to come. I mean, what else is on this government's radar? As one of every two positive COVID cases in the country emanate out of Alberta as we hear that patients ICU patients in particular in Alberta may be shipped to other jurisdictions or Alberta may start bringing in healthcare professionals in particular nurses from other provinces like Newfoundland and Alberta's premier spoke to this this was premier Jason Kenney just yesterday afternoon what I indicated to premier Furry last uh, last week was uh, that we were not reaching uh, the outward lim- upper limit of our health system as we had, uh, we were concerned we might uh, uh, around September 23rd. And I said, uh, based on our early warning system, uh, that worst case scenario would not happen until the third to fourth week of October. So, um, but we, if Newfoundland feels that they can uh, free up some medical personnel to supplement uh, our own uh, frontline workers, we, we would be delighted to receive that support. In fact, uh, I, I think they, they're most interested in sending some people up to the hospital in Fort McMurray, uh, because as Premier Furry said, uh, Fort McMurray is Newfoundland's second largest city. So uh, I know those discussions are going on right now between AHS and uh, the Newfoundland Health Service. So there may be news on that in the days to come. That was Premier Jason Kenney yesterday. He's like being all cute about Fort McMurray. It's like, dude, there's like a full blown fucking crisis right now. So like, hey, a new f- uh, Fort McMurray is like the second largest city. And like <laughs> his little smirk It's like, buddy, focus, y- you've, you've created like a huge problem, right? You know, you've got like this forest fire raging behind you while you're still holding the jerry can and the pack of matches and a firefighter rolls in from Newfoundland. You're like, yeah, don't say I welcome. This is like the second line. Sir, did you start this fire? Are you responsible for this blazing wildfire behind us? Hey, this is like the second line. Are you from Newfoundland? Is that accent from Newfoundland? You know, I was just talking to your premier. This is like the second. Hey, huh? Twitter, of course, lit up. 
after Kenny spoke yesterday. I just pulled a few at random. Here's what I was seeing on my timeline. Eric Doman. You remember Eric was on the show uh, several months ago. Just amazing dude. Uh, a creative professional. Articulate guy says, you know, we've reached the traffic's bad. Just widen the roads stage of the pandemic in Alberta. I thought that comment was bang on. Uh, this one from Calgary mayoral candidate Jody Gondek who says the Kenny pandemic management strategy is to accept double digit death counts and allow collapse of the healthcare system. You know, let it run its course. Numb yourself to sickness and death, uh, says Gondek. Speak up, Alberta. Our outrage must be heard. Push for action. Don't relent now. Act, Premier. I'd be curious to see how Gondek does in that mayoral race, that election coming up, of course, October 18th. Uh, has she confirmed on our special show? Are we ready to make that announcement yet? Yeah, we won't make the announcement yet. That's 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 Sarah's wheelhouse. <laughs> She's going Jesperson for Pete's sake. Corey Hogan, member of our editorial board, podcaster with the strategist, says, I wonder how many kitchen tables will have the should we stay in Alberta conversation tonight? He says, I wonder how many kitchen tables will have the there's no way we can move to Alberta conversation tonight he says these people in leadership roles do our great province serious harm remember that Corey used to steer the ship at the public affairs bureau government communications the guy knows what he's talking about here's another message that jumped out at me yesterday from dr elaine hishka wonders why did we need a premier and two ministers to say don't protest at hospitals and get vaccinated okay she was looking for more this one from uh, Calgary City Councilor Drew Farrell, not seeking re-election of note. She appeals to the Prime Minister, says, uh, Dear Justin Trudeau, please make any provincial health care transfers conditional to a public system. Many Albertans don't trust the current government, the UCP, to spend it wisely. They're standing idly by watching the system collapse while openly musing about privatization says Councillor Farrell, with their cruel and deadly approach to COVID-19 and the opioid crisis as guides, I shudder to think about the kind of private system they have in mind. That from Calgary Councillor Drew Farrell. And Jeff Notchdegall, an entrepreneur in Edmonton, says, you know, I bet I could assemble a group of 10 volunteers before dinner today that could run this province better than our current government. That from Jeff. Also wanted to give a shout out, Sam, let's do it where credit's due. Uh, Our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll today, I I promised this fella he would get his appropriate credit and his shout out on Real Talk. It was Darren who reached out to me. Darren Kirkpatrick, who said, Jespo, a poll question maybe you might consider using. The premier keeps insisting that a full lockdown unfairly hurts the 80% who've done their part. I'd love to see that put to the test. Are you vaxxed and in favor of a lockdown? Are you uh, are you vaxxed and not in favor? Are you unvaxxed and in favor or unvaxxed and not in favor? And that's the poll that we currently have going. So, Darren, thank you for your engagement. Always appreciate when people reach out to us and say, this is what I would love to see or hear on the show today. And if you look at your poll. Yeah, I mean, I would say let me get right back up to the top here. I'm, I'm, I'm getting buried in the comments here, <laughs> which is all good. Uh, coming up on eighty nine hundred votes right now. It's, it's still holding at about fifty six percent. And so 56% are saying I'm vaxxed and I'd like to see a lockdown. Now, keep in mind, 40% say I'm vaxxed and I'd like to see passports. And so I know that this isn't how they work. I know that and this is why we call it an unscientific. Uh, and it, people always say to me, well, yeah, but Jesperson, these are your Twitter followers. You know, these are these are these are, you know, people that, that whose thoughts align with you. I go, well, there's like 8,900 people that have answered this. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I use all the hashtags, which means that if, you know, the anti-vaxxers are more than welcome to come in and take over the poll. I mean, I'd love to see it. But if you combine the two, which I realize isn't really how it works, but you've got 96 percent of respondents saying I'm vaccinated and I'd like to see either a lockdown or vaccine passports or a combination of both. Yeah. So 96 percent. Now, I don't think that 96 percent of people on the street are going to say I'd love to see another lockdown. But I bet you the majority of people would say whatever we need to do, whatever the health professionals are recommending, the statisticians, the virologists, the people that, quite frankly, have kind of been right the whole time mm-hmm. about this. You know, I saw somebody tweet the other day, Dr. Joe Vipond was right about everything. You know, the founder of the Protect Our Province rallies, the guy that stepped up when Dr. Hinshaw faltered and stopped her media availabilities. And these guys started pushing him out on YouTube every afternoon. That still is remarkable. That's one of the things we're going to look back on years after this. We're going to look back on. Remember when doctors had to start their own YouTube channel to talk to Albertans because the chief medical officer of health, the premier and the health minister weren't doing it. Mm hmm. That's going to be something that's going to occur to us. I guarantee it. The poll is open, as mentioned, for, for just about nine more hours. If you'd like to chime in, I mean, if, if you are an anti-vaxxer or someone that's unvaccinated, uh, I, I invite you to leave a comment there. And of course, we'll keep an eye on that and we'll get to more comments as we can. Every Wednesday, it's uh, such a pleasure for us to partner with our friends at Tourism Jasper to take you out to the mountains for a, a breath of fresh air, so to speak. We call it my Jasper memories. Wonderful opportunity to feature some of the more incredible elements of beautiful Jasper National Park, one of Canada's crown jewels. And today we focus on this year's Dark Sky Festival. If you've never been a part of it, this is the year, I think, for you to make that move. The Jasper Dark Sky Festival runs from October 15th through the 24th, and there are some crowd favorite events you should be aware of, including the Sky Tram Star Sessions. Absolutely amazing. Every Friday and Saturday night this October, you can blast off with astronomy experts from the Jasper Planetarium. I was just there a few weeks ago. Just incredible. For an exclusive dining and stargazing experience atop Whistler's Mountain. Are you kidding me? A guided tour learning about planets, galaxies, astrophotography tips with local guides. And then, of course, there's Symphony Under the Stars. Your chance to cozy up with a blanket, witness the magic of the ESO strings, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra strings amplified by the Rocky Mountains under thousands of twinkling stars. I literally just got chills thinking about it. And then the drone light show. Yeah, a drone light show. Uh, This is the Dark Sky Festival's newest big event. You go, wait, I haven't heard about this. We don't even have photos of it because it hasn't happened. An outdoor concert by Jay Ingram and the Beakerhead Band, one of the cooler band names I've heard in a long time. And then you turn your eye to the skies for a drone light show. It mixes art, science, wonder, and culture. You can watch as the sky fills with moving lights controlled by hundreds of drones. I mean, this is going to be wild. It smoothly tells the story of indigenous origins narrated by local indigenous knowledge keeper matricia bauer who we featured in a my jasper memory 
And you can check out that archive story online at jasper.travel slash realtalk. The spectacle will be a must-see and an enchanting option for the whole family. You can learn more about this year's Dark Sky Festival, as mentioned, by visiting jasper.travel slash realtalk. Every week, it is our pleasure to share photos that you, real talkers, have submitted your Jasper memories. You send them to us. You can send them to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Like this one. I mean, these are absolutely beautiful from Donna. Or, of course, you can hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ on Instagram, on Twitter. Donna's in Jasper right now. She's staying at the Patricia Bungalows. Look at these colors. Apologies to those of you that are listening to this on the podcast. These are uh, just a stunning treescape. As viewed, this glorious landscape, Donna calls it, from the Patricia Bungalows. Just absolutely beautiful. You can send us your photos. Woo! Are those larch? I think those are some larch. I believe they are larch. How they are larch and they change the color. Larch, the, 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 there's like a larch season. Yes. And, but it's a it's a tight window. There's a very, very small window. You Scramblers, like hikers know all about it. There's like mm-hmm. larch season. You want to get up there and see them while that, that treescape just explodes. And uh, our thanks to Donna for passing those along. We'd love to see your photos. Just use the hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. And of course, you can check out jasper.travel slash real talk presented by tourism jasper pretty powerful uh, demonstration or, or do i maybe call it an installation at edmonton's uh, city hall yesterday uh skeletons what's the reason what's the purpose what's the talking point that organizers were hoping to spur that in just a moment of course we've been talking uh, and i'm talking society has Uh, As part of a pop culture story reiterated the the nastiness, the evil that can exist among celebrities, people who sometimes appear to be Teflon, right, evading prosecution or arrest through the years. There have been many celebrities accused of sexual assault, rape, even human trafficking. I want to let you know that the conversation coming up right now may be one that's painful for some of our audience. This segment will discuss topics around sexual assault and violence, and we acknowledge uh, as an organization here at Real Talk that this content may be difficult for some of you. The story is of entertainer R. Kelly found guilty in a sex trafficking trial. As a matter of fact, he's been convicted of exploiting his superstar status to run a scheme to sexually abuse women and children over two decades. Eleven accusers, nine women, two men, took to the stand over a six-week trial to describe sexual humiliation and violence at the hands of the man known as R. Kelly, his real name, Robert Sylvester Kelly. You know, the songs, I Believe I Can Fly, Ignition. Obviously, one of the biggest entertainers uh, through the 1990s and the early 2000s. He was acquitted in a previous trial. It makes this one even more significant. He awaits sentencing and legal experts say that he could be sentenced to decades behind bars. Well, it's got people talking about human trafficking and what that actually means. I mean, when you think about human trafficking, if you think about Southeast Asia or some far off country, maybe somewhere in Africa, you think it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen where I live. You'd be wrong. It's a pleasure and an honor to welcome our next guests. 
Andrea Heinz uh, is a former escort, escort and brothel owner uh, working seven years in the sex trade. She's now an advocate for the abolition of the sex industry. Julia Drydick is the executive director of the Canadian Center to End Human Trafficking. Uh, this national nonprofit is dedicated to ending all types of human trafficking in Canada. Andrea and Julia, it's an honor to welcome you here for what I know is an extremely important uh, conversation. Andrea, we're, we're going to localize our talk in just a moment, uh, including that powerful image of, of those dressed up skeletons outside Edmonton's uh, City Hall. But but let me ask you about the pop culture story first, the, the conviction of R. Kelly. I, I would imagine that's something that would resonate with you based on your advocacy. Absolutely. Um, I really think it's long overdue. As you said, R. Kelly evaded arrest or evaded, evaded prosecution previously. And uh, we see that all too often with traffickers. Their abuse is excused. It's minimized when it's not flat out excused. And I'm not sure if victims are being deliberately silenced or if they're just being preferably unheard. But uh, it's happening all across the board. Like you said, it's not exclusive to any international situations. Uh, most sex trafficking that's occurring here in Canada is happening within the country. And there's definitely more that we need to do. So, yeah, happy to see that news about R. Kelly. Um, unfortunate, of course, that it happened, but happy to see an arrest and a conviction. Yeah. Julia, how significant is it? I mean, what, what, what have you been processing as, as you've been observing, I would imagine, that trial and his conviction? You know, it is always good news when traffickers are held to account for their actions and when um, survivors can access justice. This is a win um, for survivors and those that have experienced sexual exploitation and trafficking. Um, but I think it's important for people to know that this isn't just happening with celebrities. This is happening in our communities and it's happening to Canadian women and girls. Um, and so I think this is a really good opportunity for Canadians to also educate themselves and to understand what's really happening in terms of human trafficking in Canada. Can we talk about, and, and, and maybe Julie, I'll follow up with you, and then Andrew will come to you. When we talk about human trafficking, uh, I know that I've been guilty in past. As a matter of fact, Andrea, your, your first appearance on this show was so enlightening for me. I mean, I learned so much from listening to you. People can, can, can visit that previous interview where you shared so much about your personal story. Uh, but when we talk about human trafficking and, and, and the definition of it, I think a lot of people imagine, I mean, you know, these heart, we see it in movies and oftentimes heartbreakingly, we see it in real life on newscasts of a of a sea can, you know, or, or, or some sort of a, a five ton cube van and the, the back door opens and there's a, a bunch of people in there terrified, you know, from halfway around the world. And, 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 and they've they've been abused. And, and, and in many cases, they don't even survive the journey and they're there under the thumb of someone. But but people don't think it happens in their own city people don't think it's happening under the under the nose of local law enforcement uh, unbeknownst to hundreds of thousands of people in, a, in an urban center uh, julia what are we talking about right here in canada you know what you, you hit the nail on the head and too many people think that this is something that happens in other countries or people that are forced into canada forcibly confined and chained to radiators really this is an issue of um traffickers embedding themselves in someone's lives positioning themselves as a boyfriend or someone that the individual can trust, giving them everything they've ever wanted in their entire life from expensive goods to that feeling of unconditional love. And then they use that as leverage to control them and to force them into the sex trade. So really when we're talking about human trafficking in Canada, it's when there's a third party that's influencing, coercing, manipulating, threatening, and forcing people into commercial sexual activity and also profiting from it. 
So, Andrea, is this, I mean, is this something that you personally have witnessed? Uh, is this something that you personally are aware of? What do people need to know? Yeah. So uh, for the seven years that I sold sex here in Edmonton, licensed body rub parlors and escorting, uh, that would have been 2006 to 2013. I definitely did see uh, signs that trafficking was occurring. Um, I can never say anything definitively, obviously, but um, there was definitely the signs that were telltale, which was often people showing up at the brothel every hour to check in on the women who were inside that were selling sex and asking them, how much money did you make? Uh, How many customers did you see? And then taking that money from them and then coming back an hour later or keeping an eye on the door of the brothel to see who was coming in and then going back shortly thereafter, the person leaves to check if that was money made by their victim. So, um, again, you know, we like to think that whenever we bring things above board, so to speak, that we are doing a service to people, that we are protecting them and keeping them safe. But what we're failing to remember is that trafficking victims are being sold right alongside those who are claiming full autonomy in the sex trade. There isn't specific brothels that are just for trafficking victims. There isn't specific websites that are just for trafficking victims. They are amongst us. And often they are manipulated. Like Julia said, they're coerced. They really don't even understand half the time that they are a victim of human trafficking. So it's really an issue where we need to have more public education, more awareness, and also just really reaching the young people so that they can understand when they're in these precarious situations of harm. Let me ask you both about this. Uh, Linda Ray uh, is watching us live right now and on our live chat. She says, you know, this has been going on for years, uh, even in our Edmonton neighborhood. She says it starts in the malls. It can start in people's homes uh, where junior high, senior high school students, you know, head to the mall at noon, for example, after school, and they are groomed. Uh, how does this happen, Julia? I mean, what what do parents need to be aware of? What do community members need to bear? What, what do young people? We, we know we have audience members, 12, 13, 14 years old. They send us emails all the time. What should they be keeping a keen eye on? Yeah. And you know what? Thank you so much for the comment, because you are right. This is happening in every part of our communities. It's happening outside of um, outside of schools, outside of recreation centers in malls. Traffickers are looking for those people and often young people who um, are desperate to fit in, who want to feel loved, who want to feel accepted. They also look for people that might be having problems at home or problems with their friends. Um, We also know that certain groups like those folks in uh, foster care and the child welfare system, um, as well as Indigenous uh, folks, are overrepresented. So they look for those individuals and then again, they love bomb them. They shower them with love, attention, and gifts. They give them that promise of feeling included and part of something. And they find out their dreams and aspirations. And then they use that, again, as collateral to coerce them into the sex trade and to control everything about it. So there's a lot of different kind of stages in the psychological and the emotional abuse that takes place through trafficking. Sometimes it can be really hard to spot. It looks like an older friend or a boyfriend, someone leaving and not telling anyone where they're going, withdrawing from their friends, not going to school. It can be really hard sometimes, um, like Andrea mentioned, to really pinpoint it. You see the signs, but traffickers are playing on that so that they can profit as much as possible and avoid law enforcement detection. So often towards the later stages of exploitation, you can see the physical abuse. They're withholding the money, they're controlling their movements. Um, Similar to what we've heard in the R. Kelly case, they can have complete control over every aspect of their life from when they eat, when they sleep, who they can see, who they can talk to. 
And so really we need to be looking for people that are entering into these incredibly unhealthy relationships where something isn't right. And then to equip our communities with the tools to be able to have those brave conversations, to be able to show their love and their commitment. Andrea, tell us about this demonstration yesterday. I, I almost want to call it an installation. I mean, like in the context of, of art, I mean, it was just very powerful imagery. Um, why were you at City Hall yesterday? And, and tell us what you brought with you. So yesterday um, I was at City Hall and I also had two teams that were at the Alberta Legislature grounds and as well Canada Place downtown on 97th Street. And what the demonstration was, was uh, skeletons that are in lingerie with wigs and placed behind signage that details the sexual acts that many women are being forced or heavily coerced into providing in the licensed sex trade and, and also the unlicensed sex trade. Um, so it's basically just to raise awareness and to show people that although we are not seeing women dying instantly in these facilities or in hotel rooms and apartments, you know, every day, all the time, we are seeing a very slow death of women in the sex trade emotionally, spiritually, and it's, it's very insidious, the harm that is coming against them. So I really just want people to understand the gravity of what we are doing and what we are permitting to happen to our young women and girls, particularly those who are, you know, socially and economically marginalized. I do agree with Julia. There's a lot of manipulation, a lot of grooming, but it really truly is a, a two-pronged problem. It is both social and it's economic. And we know that when young people are struggling, you know, heavily amid a pandemic, which they are disproportionately, it's very easily to come in and just try to, you know, manipulate them and to have that power over them. You know, like she said, the iPhones and the clothes or whatever it may be. But it's also the social narrative that sex buying is a harmless act activity, that it doesn't impact anyone in any negative way. And therefore, we have to tackle this problem really looking through both lenses if we want to make a difference. Yeah, let me let me ask the two of you to to, to speak to, and I guess I'm about to say men, uh, because my suspicion is you're going to tell us that it's predominantly men. But but if I'm wrong, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to be corrected. But to people, let's say, uh, what's your message to people that would, um, and I don't know where you want to start the conversation, but, you know, the frog in boiling water starts when it's cool. Uh, you know, people that, that would, uh, you know, go with their pals to the strippers after work, right? Have a few beers, throw a few loonies, pick up a poster. It's all in good fun. She loves doing it. She's making 500 bucks a night or 2000 bucks a night. Uh, and then the guy maybe that, doesn't want to work for it. It doesn't want to go on Bumble or Tinder, right? He wants to He wants to just go ahead and just buy sex. Uh, maybe the people that are, quite frankly, addicted to it, uh, that every payday, uh, they're, they're, they're buying sex. Andrew, I'm sure that you had back in the day. Uh, I don't think you mind talking about it. Probably regulars. Um, what's your message to these people? My message is really that the industry is duly exploitative. I really don't like when people target men specifically, although men are the vast majority of sex consumers in every regard. It's very important to remember that there are a great number of men that don't buy sex and that denounce sex buying and sexual exploitation and that they're out there trying to do and, and make a difference. So I really think that we have to call men in rather than calling men out, because although they are part of this problem, they are you know, inherent to the solution as well. 
And so, yes, it is an issue. Um, it is a highly gendered issue, but it's not one that is irreparable. And I, I think that men can do better and I see it every day and I just want more men to follow in those footsteps of those men. I think that's an amazing answer and I totally appreciate drawing men in or calling men in instead of calling them out. Let me ask you a more direct question. Do you think it's inherently wrong for somebody to go to the strippers? You know, personally, um, I never used to believe that because I do know that there's a continuum of agency within the commercial sex trade. And there are people that are in very high positionings uh, or very prominent, you know, positions where they have a lot of bargaining power, where they are making a lot of money. But I think that we have to look at what is good for women as a whole. You know, when we look back to even when the vote was happening, I'm sure there was women that didn't want the vote either. But collectively, we looked at the issue and we said, this is affecting women in a negative way. And so, yes, we do have one or two, 10 people, however many that are benefiting from this, that are not experiencing exploitation in their mind. But we have to also remember that that is a small demographic and that there's a lot of individuals who are experiencing harm. And we're not seeing women exiting the sex trade rich. We're not seeing them welcomed into the mainstream workforce by putting sex worker on their resume. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I was actually fired by the government after I exited the sex industry because I had been a sex seller. And I would tell you more about it, but I can't because the government legally gagged me on that so that I wouldn't share that information. So therefore I'm at the point now where I'm tired of the euphemisms. I, I know so many women are, I'm part of a group of women and it's a growing group that are really tired of the skewing of this term sex positivity. And we're ready to actually see real meaningful change in the material conditions of women's lives so that women actually have viable choice. And then we can actually have a conversation about who chooses to participate in the sex industry and who is there based on coercion or force. Uh, we have to circle back on sex positivity in just a second. Um, and, and I also want to note, by the way, I should, I, Andrew, I should have mentioned this in your introduction. You also hold a diploma in correctional services. Uh, now, uh, very close, you're in fourth year of completing your studies towards your uh, Bachelor of Professional Arts and Governance Law and Management, uh, which is, uh, I, I think, going to even further equip you to, to do amazing advocacy work. Uh, Julia, I don't want to leave you sitting here, though. I mean, we've asked, well, you know, what's your message to these people? Uh, and if you'd like to build on or add to what Andrea just said, I'd love to invite you to. I, yeah, no, I just want to build on that and say, you know, there is choice and autonomy, and we know that this is not the same experience for everyone, but there are gross instances of exploitation happening across the commercial sex industry. This is not a clean, ethical, um, you know, economy or system um, where individual human rights are protected. It's actually systematically the opposite. Um, so the other thing I will say is that as operator of the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, we also do get calls from commercial sex buyers and from Johns, sometimes reporting tips when uh, they are, have been set up to meet with a minor, um, which is not their expectation, or when there are indicators of human trafficking. So I think there's a huge conversation about what we do to get at the root causes of this, but also if anyone suspects anything dangerous or if they think human trafficking is taking place, they should call our 24-hour confidential hotline at one 833-900-1010. I love that. I'm going to write that down. 1-833-900-1010. Uh, Andrea, I, uh, as a matter of fact, one of my friends has an OnlyFans account. And uh, on her Instagram, you know, she, she talks a lot about sex positivity. Uh, she's got a lot of posts. Um, I'm certain she doesn't want me showing them on the show right now. 
Uh, she's not asked to be brought into this conversation, but she's, she's got strong messages for her critics. Um, she, she walks with her head held high. Uh, it's a way for her to pad her income. And in my opinion, uh, her position might be plainly stated that people that would crack on her for having an OnlyFans account, for making photos and videos available to people that subscribe on a monthly basis, would be anti-feminists. Are you facing barbs like that when, when you speak out against so-called sex positivity? Because it is a movement. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to loop everything into one big ball of wax here, but even people that watch the wildly popular television franchise, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette will know that the most recent Bachelorette was celebrated every episode for her sex positivity. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with somebody that chooses to have multiple sexual partners or whatever. That's your own thing. But the phrase itself has really gained traction and it's becoming more and more prominent. Uh, do people accuse you of being an anti-feminist or an enemy of feminism? Every single day. It's mm. probably the accusation I get more than anything is that I'm anti-woman. I'm anti-bodily autonomy. I am anti-agency. And that's just not true. I think, you know, when we look at what feminism actually is, it is the collective liberation of women from oppression. And when we look at where women are being most oppressed now in this current day and age, it's hard to find another place aside from the commercial sex trade where that is happening to this scale. And so, again, some people, yes, individually profiting, individually, uh, you know, doing well, but collectively, is that good for women? And, you know, you mentioned OnlyFans and speaking to that specifically, we think back to 2019, OnlyFans only had 120,000 users in 2019. Jump to the end of 2020, or yeah, 2020, December, and I've got the number here, 90 million users on OnlyFans. So we went from 120,000 to 90 million because of the pandemic. To me, that's not saying all these women just had an epiphany that all of a sudden, you know, selling sexual access is all is liberating. What it tells me is that, again, the material conditions of women and how we are suffering under that is what is driving us to compromise what we would normally want to do and, and enlist ourselves into the commercial sex trade. And then when we do that under this premise of need and uh, economic coercion, essentially, people are then turning around and saying, well, she chose that. But really, again, what is a choice and what is a decision? Most people are deciding to enter the sex trade because of lack of choice. Julia, what did the what did the whole Jeffrey Epstein story uh, do to discussion, public discussion around human trafficking, sex abuse, et cetera? You know, it's a double edged sword because when we see these really high profile human trafficking cases, but that are also very specific in their own right, it does open up a conversation. So people are starting to say, holy, this is actually happening in my community. This is a this is a North American issue. This is a Canadian issue. But it also kind of positions people in thinking that this only happens when it's a celebrity um, or that it's this kind of big, far out conspiracy um, that, you know, people in power are orchestrating this. Um, so while we love the opportunity to open conversation and dialogue about the fact that this is actually happening in Canada, it's also really important that people understand that it doesn't have to be a sensationalized headline that this is actually happening um, behind the scenes, behind closed doors, but also right in front of us in our communities. Um, I'll also say that some of the Epstein and some of the other celebrity stuff do sometimes fuel a bit of conspiracy theory uh, stuff coming out. 
um, which is kind of inevitable. We're doing pretty well with that in Canada overall. But again, even if that triggers a call to the hotline where we can build out some education and some awareness about what human trafficking is, we'll take it because that's mm. the work that needs to get done. Fair enough. Uh, Andrew, would you tell us about this uh, this FOIP uh, epiphany that you may have had? Uh, with I think that, I mean, this is, uh, I, I think, going to be shocking and, uh, and I hope informative to people living in Edmonton and Alberta, but should be, I think, of, of interest uh, and of concern to people across the country right now. I agree. Um, and I don't know if you have those comments directly, Ryan, so I, I'll happily read them out. But basically, again, you know, I'm part of a group of women that are just really tired of the narrative and the sanitizing and the romanticizing of exploitation. So two years ago, an ally, a female friend of mine, put in a request to the city to have a report given to her to detail kind of the process of the city of Edmonton and what they're doing in regards to licensing and addressing trafficking and exploitation. The city took over two years to give that report and it took multiple requests and actually an official complaint before the city of Edmonton released this report. And so this 547 page report that came through, I read through it. Of course, there's some internal emails and direct comments from a bylaw enforcement officer in 2019. So again, we're going back a couple of years said, quote, there have been many instances where we have come across someone who claims to be the receptionist or security guard and wondered if the individual is actually someone's pimp trafficker boyfriend. And then later in, uh, sorry, one year prior to that, my apologies, a supervisor in the inspections and licensing department says, quote, we are running into problems where the practitioners are living at the centers because they are being trafficked. We won't stop the trafficking, but if we can make it more difficult, that is a start. So there's knowingly trafficking happening in these facilities and it's being licensed and some people might say well it's harm reduction we have to do it you know it's a start as, as the city staffer says but to me what it is doing is normalizing and mainstreaming exploitation and it's really sanctioning it by the state and imagine the impact on the victim with that when your abuse is state sanctioned and nobody is offering you any exit strategies there's no counseling offered throughout the city for people there's no right to exit there women are trapped. And if they don't participate in the licensing regime here in Edmonton, they face risk of a $1,000 fine from bylaw for not becoming public to the city about their activity. So again, that's bureaucratic visibility stress. Nobody wants to be documented as a sex seller. People typically want to be in and out of the sex trade as quick as possible and return to life. So it's just really disheartening to see that the city's aware of this and they're not taking appropriate action to remedy the, the issue. Is, is that something that you see, uh, Julia, with, with regards to a national focus? I mean, I would imagine you're not going to tell us that this is limited to or exclusive to, to Alberta's capital city. No, it's in every single community across Canada. Um, and even in our first year of operating the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, we got over 2,300 calls from across the country and wow. identified 415 cases in provinces and communities, again, across the country. Um, I think, um, you know, the issue of criminalization versus legalization um, is one that's really hotly contested, as we know. Part of it, too, is we don't really know how to implement it properly. Um, so um, on either side of things, there's always the risk that some people are going to be pushed further into the underground and into the shadows, increasing risks of, um, you know, violence and insecurity. Um, and then also concerns that what we're doing, if we are legalizing, is that we're basically complicit supporters of their exploitation. I think one thing that really kind of struck me about the R. Kelly case um, and how long it took is 
how many people were complicit in the exploitation. They knew it was happening. They saw it with their own eyes, but they turned away, walked away, and didn't say anything. So I think if we really put human rights, if we put the well-being of women at the very center of it, then we can start figuring out the hard details in terms of how we actually move forward. But unfortunately, there's no easy solution. Andrea, I know I have to let you go. I know you have a 1030. Do we, do we have time for one more question? I, I, I'd really be curious to know your take on this Wall Street Journal expose. Uh, the, the one that uh, a series pushed out by the Wall Street Journal uh, detailing how Facebook employees have flagged human traffickers, but the company's response is deemed to have been weak here. I'm, I'm curious uh, for your take on how you believe that social media and technology has contributed to this and what you think would be an appropriate response from Facebook. I think, you know, social media is a huge driver of what we're seeing. You know, it's, it's very weird, actually, what we're seeing. Like we saw, you know, WAP, that uh, music video, very graphic video, reach number one, basically, what was it, six months or eight months after Baby It's Cold Outside was banned. So we're really just getting a lot of mixed messages going all over the place where people are hearing one thing and then they're hearing another and there's no real solid information and no real path that people can follow to really get the accurate information because it's social media and people will post anything. So that's where I really think that we have to hold service providers accountable on social media forums. And we have to also really heavily promote honest conversations and, you know, facts like what Julia's organization gives, you know, like we need to start going to the source of people that are subject matter experts. And we need to bring those people into roundtable discussions of ongoing working groups to address the women's needs that are specific to us so that we're not falling prey to this. But yeah, there's there's been a long problem. Same thing with Instagram, TikTok, Whisper, uh, you name it, every single one of those forums, even Twitter, you know, there's child exploitation happening. There's you know, human trafficking happening that's being facilitated through these venues. So nothing is, you know, foolproof. There's no safe way to ensure that someone that you are purchasing sexual access from is there by choice. And so we just really need to have, again, a bigger conversation about the material conditions in women's lives so that we have actual opportunities and that we are not so readily sucked in by this narrative or by people who are looking to victimize us. Andrea, we know you have to go. Uh, Julia, don't go anywhere. But Andrea, I want to thank you so much for joining us again. More power to you. Uh, It's always informative and enlightening. And I know you have such an important message here. I know that Real Talkers are going to respond to this in a big way. It's great to see your face again. Thank you for this. You too. Thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. And Julia, thank you for the great work you do. Thank you. You got it. That's uh, Julia. Don't go anywhere. That's uh, Andrea Heinz, who's joined us. And and by the way, I think that Andrea has one of the best uh, Twitter handles of all time. Heinz site 2020. I think that's just so telling uh, her history. Seven years working in the sex trade. She owned a brothel. Uh, now an advocate for the abolition of the sex industry with a diploma, correctional services, working towards a degree in governance, law and management and uh, a force to be hold. Um, Julia, thanks for sticking around. Uh, I knew that Andrea had a meeting, so we, we had to let her get to it. But I wanted to ask you the same question. I'm sure you have insight on this with regards to Facebook and not just Facebook, uh, but that's what the Wall Street Journal has honed in on. What would be an appropriate response from the company and, and, and bigger picture? What's your interpretation of, of the role that social media plays? Absolutely. So we know, even just anecdotally through our callers and by fielding calls day in, day out throughout the pandemic, that uh, the internet is being increasingly used for sex trafficking. And it's not just OnlyFans and the remote sexual operations, it's also through luring and grooming. 
So our kids are spending a lot more time on their screens um, and families have been stretched to the brim when it comes to stay-at-home schooling and all of the lockdowns. Um, so traffickers have found ways to use that to their benefit. The hard thing is, is that it's not always easy to spot. They're usually starting kind of embedding themselves again as a friend or a love interest. Um, stuff that in some ways could seem very normal or um, you know, not necessarily relate to human trafficking. Um, but then from that, they'll use that as an in to start building that relationship and then start the, court, the, the coercion and the control. Um, so we know for a fact that, you know, the exploitation is happening on the internet. And there, I think we've got a lot more kind of direct tools to be able to kind of identify, take that down, use it as part of prosecutions, actually hold traffickers to account. Um, but, you know, traffickers can be like cockroaches. They are sneaky. They will slide into whatever crack they can to self-preserve themselves. And they're using social media, again, to build those relationships and get those in so they can start exploiting people for their own gain. That might be an insult to cockroaches, actually. Uh, Julia Drydick joining us from the Canadian Center to End Human Trafficking. Uh, your organization just doing incredibly important work. Uh, people can learn more again at Canadian Center to End Human Trafficking dot CA and that hotline one eight three three nine hundred ten ten. Julia Drydick, our guest this morning. Thank you so much for this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for the opportunity. You got it. On our live chat, I wanted to leave some time here to get to some of your comments. I mean, Eddie making a great point says human trafficking doesn't only necessarily happen in brothels, of course. Terry tragically points out if you're in the foster care system at all, you'll see the impact of sex trafficking. I just to me, I know I'm not saying anything profound here. I remember saying this on the radio once and, and, and it made the executives uncomfortable. And I, it's just it's one of these things that we need to grapple with and wrestle with. And that's that uh, I hate to say it, but like right now, as we speak. You know, people are being exploited and abused in our city as we speak right now, right this minute. Where, uh, where everybody, like any, whoever is listening to this, where they are. It's happening. It's happening. Whatever province you're in, whatever country you're in, we know that we have people that visit our website every week, every month for more than 60 countries. It's something we need to wrestle with. I, I welcome your comments on this. Uh, Tracy says, over the last 15 years, I've worked with victims of human trafficking that were all ages, both genders, sex and labor trafficking. It's a good point. Terry says it's another argument for basic universal income. Huh? James says, I always found the loony tossing at strippers totally revolting. It's, it's unique to certain places in Canada where that's even legal. It's to me, it's like just. I don't know. I'm, uh, that's just like the most degrading thing I think you can possibly do. Tracy says, you know, in, in my work, this is a, a subsequent comment saying that she's worked with survivors for more than 15 years, says I lost a lot of people carrying scars, you know, needed to be surrounded by practitioners of all different disciplines. And you need to be able to find medical staff that really care. Jillian says men need to be called in and called out. She says men more than anybody demand to be treated with kid gloves. You know, uh, you know, they can do that because they hold the power, right? Be nice or I won't change. 
Kim wonders, I wonder if the women in the small majority that hold some level of power or agency over themselves and then become complicit in the problem where the rest are exploited. Joanne says with that Jeffrey Epstein situation, his right hand person in business, a woman, she was the one that recruited and groomed other girls to then become recruiters in the schools. I know it's not the same thing, but you look at Paul Bernardo. I mean, who empowered and enabled Paul Bernardo is Carla Homolka, right? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not trying to get out profound here and say, that, well, maybe it's not always the men, but it is not always the men. But disproportionately, I think statistically, this is something that men need to have a difficult conversation about. Uh, but there are the point here is that there are many dynamics at play. And I think probably, you know, if you're to walk into it, I mean, using the cockroach metaphor, if you're going to walk into a room, a dark room here and figure this problem out, you got to shine the light all over the place. Kim says paying women wages in every aspect of their life that's equivalent or even higher to what men are earning is power, a financial power that would change that sex positivity conversation. And I think that the watcher makes a great point here saying choice and decision there is the razor andrea made a good point with that that was an excellent point i i really just it made me sit back in my chair and and yeah just trying to take that on i mean to that point talking about uh carla homoka i mean i'm not i don't excuse what she did but i also know that there's complexities within that relationship oh sure and there would have been uh, abuse and power dynamics as with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it does not excuse what happened, but I, <laughs> there's complexity there, with everything. Yeah. And I think it's a great point. And uh, that is what we call real talk. And I appreciate knowing that there's an audience that joins us. You know, today we, we knew we mentally prepared. We have a production meeting every morning about a half an hour before we go on. And Sam and Sarah and I went, it's going to be a heavy show today. We're going to talk about reconciliation. We're going to talk about human sex trafficking. And we have an audience that's with us every morning to have these important conversations. And then we know that you go and you tell people about this and you share our content and you, you get people to subscribe to our shows and you hit that like button. So the algorithms ensure that these conversations have the reach that they need. And we really appreciate it. We're going to wrap today's shows by getting to some of your emails as promised. But first, I want to remind you that the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge right now are looking to buy your truck off you. It's true. I talked to Brad, the GM at St. Albert Dodge. I said, what's the one thing you want me to tell real talkers this week? He says, we've got a great inventory of used vehicles, a lot of them under 10,000 K on them. He says, but we're always looking for more. It's because the inventory is really tough to secure on new trucks right now for a number of different reasons. And that's the case everywhere. But at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, they've got a really impressive used selection. They'd love to tell you about. You can visit them online by checking out the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. They'll be happy to answer any of your questions. You can search their inventory Alberta's best selection at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. Our friends at Local Waste are buckling up for another edition of Trash Talk. That's coming up this Friday. They've been keeping it local for 25 years and they love to talk trash. Whether that's helping you understand what size of bin you might need for your fall yard cleanup or your, or, or your, your basement. Uh, maybe you're doing a big purge. Do you think people are starting to figure out that I'm in the middle of a basement purge right now? The fact that I mention it every single day 
I said to Carrie, I'm like, I'm going to have to dedicate an afternoon to this basement purge. She's like, are you? She's like, what? She's like, you're going to have to dedicate an afternoon to 10 square feet of the basement purge. Are you Are you holding everything and figuring out if it brings you joy? Yeah, uh, th- th- that's the Marie Kondo thing. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that everything sparks joy with <laughs> yeah. me. I find joy in everything. Like, I'm not even joking. I mean, I just, I can't even, I can't even get into it. The point is, I'm going to require a bin from local waste. I mean, it could be me or, or, or maybe you run a big hotel with 400 rooms and, and you need a bin, a bit of a bigger size. They've been figuring out solutions for people for a quarter century, still family owned and operated. You can check them out online at localwaste.ca. You know who else is family owned and operated is the team at Eden Landscaping. 20 years of history bringing outdoor spaces to life. A custom landscape builder with on the ground experience in Edmonton and area. One of the things that they're really proud of it's a one-stop shop you don't have to hire a landscape architect then you hire a general contractor then you hire somebody to dig the trenches or then you got to find somebody to no it all starts and stops with mike and his team at eden landscaping you can check out their beautiful portfolio at landscapeedmonton.ca and today a shout out to our friends at grand dog essentials weekly delivery of quality raw dog food to Metro Calgary and Edmonton areas. And of course, their drivers are making stops in Red Deer as well. As more and more people realize the benefits of taking your dog to a raw diet. If you have questions on what that transition looks like from kibble to raw or what your dog's poop is telling you. Yeah, your dog's poop. It's telling you things. And not just when you're eating psychedelic magic mushrooms. Sometimes just by looking at it, the dog's poop will be telling you something. You can check out the most recent blog post at granddog.ca. And don't forget to use the promo code REALTALK to get 10% off your first time order. Sam Brooks has his face buried in his hands. Is this based on personal experience, Sam? Oh, well, I mean... I don't know if you guys want to hear my personal dog poop experience stories. Well, I, I was just, hoping more for I, like your personal psychedelic magi- magic mushroom story. Oh, no, story. not that. No, 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 oh, no okay. not that at well, all. The dog yeah. poop story. Sure, let's do it. It's late in the show. Uh, don't let your dog steal the wasabi out of your sushi. Oh, I'm going to leave it at that. Sam. I, oh, my. Not, oh, Sam. Oh, Sophie. Yeah. I feel more, ba- more yeah, bad for Sophie, too. who the probably learned a tough lesson. So was yeah. that was that clean up more with a garden hose as opposed to a shovel? Unfortunately, oh, yes. sweet Sophie girl. I've got a buddy who uh, thought that uh, wasabi was what's it called? Spamento or pimento? What's that ice cream called? The green Italian ice cream? Pistachio? No, not pistachio. Spamento? You know, it's like a thing. I got to Google this live. Anyway, there's his name- pistachio, which is green uh, ice yeah, cream. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, also wasabi I'm ice cream. Wrong. I'm getting it wrong. Anyway, I'm blowing it. Anyway, he thought it was ice cream. You blew it. Oh. And he took an enormous bite of it. He's not. And after the fact, like after like the, he stopped sort of like tears streaming down his face and his forehead was sweating and everything. And he says to us, which in my mind was like one of the greatest punchlines of all time. He says to me, I don't eat sushi that often. (laughs) I went, oh, we know. You don't say. You don't say. Yeah, we can tell. We can tell, Slady. We can tell. I love that guy. Never get to see him anymore. All right, so we got some emails, and um, we're gonna have to. Yeah, we got to lose the fun music because people people are just straight up pissed off right now. And so we we should maybe do. And we can't do the trash talk music. We got to save it. Uh, but let me get to this from Heather. 
I mean, this is serious stuff. Heather Heather wrote in and and she said, uh, rural Alberta, Ryan, is my home. And she says, rural Alberta is just a wonderful place to live. And yesterday I was sitting in our truck and I was waiting for my fully vaxxed, fully masked husband as he picked up parts at a local ag dealership. It says I, I sat watching as people came in and out and most of them not wearing masks. There was no distancing. And quite frankly, it didn't look like anybody cared. Heather says our local gym is running full adult fitness classes without any use of this restrictive exemptions protocol says one instructor just tested positive for covid and i hear that very few participants are vaccinated heather says these are just a couple of examples of life in my world she says the cognitive dissonance my brain is subjected to on a daily basis has taken a real toll and i wish that i could just not care you know these are my neighbors these are my friends but it feels like they're from a different planet and i just can't understand how my friends believe that covid won't touch them. It's and it's not just my mental health, she says, but my emotional health too. My heart is broken for our healthcare workers and for our children. And that the premier would would rather allow disunity to grow amongst the citizens of Alberta as opposed to be willing to do the heavy lifting and have folks maybe just be a little bit upset with him while he does the right thing. It just shows what a lack of understanding there is around what real leadership looks like. She says, oh, and by the way, I live in Shane Getson's riding. No leadership and no hope. That from Heather. Remember, Shane Getson was the MLA that's calling on Dr. Verna Yu essentially to take a big pay cut, saying she makes too much for Alberta Health Services to be run up against the wall with a lack of ICU capacity. It's what prompted a bit of a rant from me yesterday. If you missed that, you'll find it on my Twitter. You can find it tweeted out from our official account at Real Talk RJ as well. Brock wrote in too, not Harrison. But Brock in Red Deer says, you know, the talk we're hearing from MLAs like Shane Getz, and it might seem outrageous, Jespo, but then I have conversations with family and friends, and I find out that they actually find it quite agreeable that our healthcare system is to blame. He says, what about your former radio colleague, Danielle Smith, still very influential, taking shots as well. I mean, she's basically asking, why can't our system be able to handle COVID like Arizona's does? He says, there's no legitimate comparisons. There's no presentation of fact. There's no professional input. She just throws it out in her newsletter like she's got the answer. And now my extended family's upset that we don't have better capacity. You know, they're they're blaming they're blaming retired nurses. You know, they say that their MLA told them that and that they'll likely support whatever position the next conservative government takes. The position is going to be called opposition, by the way, Brock says it's becoming worrisome that our health system and healthcare workers are under attack. And it won't be a stretch for these people like Getson to lead many to the conclusion that a private healthcare system would be the answer to prevent the next pandemic. All of this when we have safe and effective vaccines available. Brock says, thanks for providing an outlet for me to vent and for continuing these conversations. You know it, bud. And I wanted to read this. I promised I would from Rosemary. This one hit me. She says, I can't communicate enough. She's writing in from Fort Saskatchewan. Just northeast of Edmonton. I can't communicate enough, says says Roe, how frustrating the handling or the lack of handling of the school outbreaks is for families. Uh, During the first few waves of COVID-19, we were fortunate to have, you know, two or three letters arrive home about close contacts. And she says, I've had six letters 
now in the first month of this school year. Two cases in each of my six-year-old and 12-year-old's classes, two cases on the school bus, and our school is now on outbreak status. No longer do I have an option to move my kids home for online schooling when there are cases in the class. No longer is there somewhere I can go online to get a big picture of what's happening in our school. My six-year-old and my nine-year-old cannot be vaccinated. My six-year-old has severe asthma and is on many meds. I need my job and I can't homeschool full-time. And I feel like I'm playing Russian roulette every single day I send him off, praying he stays safe and doesn't contract COVID on the bus, in the classroom, or somewhere else. She says, Fort Saskatchewan, uh, at the time, Ryan, I'm writing you this email, has 167 cases. That's a rate of 615 cases per 100,000 people. That's double the rate in Edmonton. The stress is unreal. Rosemary says, I'm devastated by this government's handling of this fourth wave. Albertans have been through so much for the last 18 months. And to get to a point this bad now is just unbelievable. We must says Rosemary, bring back contact tracing and outbreak monitoring for schools where one population is 100% unvaccinated. That from Rosemary in Fort Saskatchewan. You can send us your thoughts, your emails on anything we've talked about on the show, or I like to say on something we're not talking about. If you'd love to see us cover a story important to you, you can be in touch with us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We made a decision as a team to honor the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation with a special edition broadcast tomorrow, an episode of Real Talk that will feature important stories from Indigenous people across this country, first-hand perspectives. We invite you to join us. In the meantime, thanks for making time for us today. We appreciate you subscribing to what we're doing and sharing our content. And of course, engaging us on social media using our hashtag RealTalkRJ. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.